We are back in your life. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase. I'm Josh. We're here to give you part seven of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows today. Guys, we have done it. We've gotten through the first half. We've turned the corner. As you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, if you can, I'll describe it to you with our visuals. I have officially changed the film to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two because last week was our differences episode where we detailed the key uh, differences between the novel through chapter 24 and the film part one. So we are uh, officially on to the final act of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in terms of the contents of the book. I'm super excited to kind of bring it here to you today and kind of, you know, segueing off visuals. I actually do have something new. I lied to you guys. I thought that I wasn't going to have any new visuals added to it outside changing the film to part two, but I found something great in one of those uh, five below stores. If you're looking here on the YouTube, you'll see it next to the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows novel. If you're just listening on audio, it is a Harry Potter book of spells. It's unofficial, of course, but it details, what's really cool about this is it details all the spells you find throughout the, the novel series. And not only does it tell you what it's used for and, uh, you know, kind of like the incantation, it also shows you the specific wand movements to get the best out of that spell. It's really cool. So I've added up here today for you. So that's a little bit of something new that you weren't expecting from me. I wasn't even expecting it from myself. So uh, that's great stuff there. That being said, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase. He'll talk to you a little bit about what he has on his end. And then we'll dive right into the contents, guys, because we're going to be tackling chapters 25 through 28 today. So a good four chapters. We're going to go ahead and Don't jump into that just a second, but I'll let Chase kind of take it away. And again, uh, he's going to tell you what he's got on his end, and we'll dive right in. Jay Nelly with the visuals, man. Great stuff. So that is is badass, the uh, unofficial Harry Potter book of spells. I knew they had an unofficial Harry Potter cookbook, but not spells. So I really appreciated that. And, you know, coming from the interesting facts guy over here, uh, guys, where you can really benefit from that book, so definitely try to pick one up if you can, what Jay Nelly's showing you, because if you go to Universal, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you can actually do those spells, and they interact with the area that you're in, depending where you stand, which is really cool, and you can always show them up on their trivia, which is what me and Jay Nelly always do, just because we want to be a smartass <laughs> every now and then, but uh, yeah, guys, we are on, man. After today, Jay Nelly, we're at the top of the mountain, man. After today, we're at the top of the mountain. There's no turning back. You better not fall off. And uh, I think the train is off the rails after next week. (laughs) That's for sure. And um, I know we got a little bit after that, but we are at the peak next week. But uh, today, we're we're getting right to the top there for you. But uh, today, what I do have, a little bit of foreshadowing. I've been holding this one for a long time. Uh, you know, I'm a big dragons guy. I'm a huge dragons guy going all the way back to Game of Thrones. And I know Jay Nelly is a massive dragons guy. Like we've always talked about his book is Goblet of Fire. Mine's Order of the Phoenix. So I'm not quite as much, but I can still get on board with some dragons. So, uh, just a little bit of foreshadowing here. You see Harry, Ron and Hermione, uh, all riding on the back of what appears to be a creature of that so a little bit of foreshadowing there uh and then you know everything else is pretty much the same except for in the back just like how jay nelly has the the film uh case i have the poster here 
it was giving me a, a bitch of a time this morning <laughs> to stay up there, but hey, it did, and uh, it's just like it all says at the very bottom. It all ends, and once again, guys, after all this time, uh, even for us, I know that's a big part of the book that's foreshadowing that we'll get to, but at the same time, even for us here at Factor Fantasy, uh, I think in a few weeks, you know, we only have so many episodes left, and it really does mean after all this time, this whole season, and we've saved the best arc for last, and uh, this is the moment. We keep saying it, but this truly is. Starting next week, that is the moment you've all waited for next week. For a year and a half, and we're finally there. You're the shields that guard the realms of fantasy, and we do this for you, and we're here because of you. And with that, I'll let Jay Nelly go ahead and kick us off today, man. Sounds like a plan, guys. So a little bit about what we kind of do before we start into our episodes. I always like to give a little bit of a recap of things that we did talk about. So if you guys remember last week, you know, it was mainly the differences between like the novel and the film. So there's not much to actually recap for us here today. It's just going to be really jumping into what we've got going on that's going to take us, like I said, we turned that corner from the first part of the film to the final act of what we're doing. And like Chase said, like we're doing four episodes a day, chapters 25 through chapter 28. Then we're going to do chapter 29 through 33 next week. And then we're going to close it with chapter 34 through the epilogue the week after that. But a lot of the climax that Chase has alluded to is going to be coming next week. So we got a lot of great stuff ahead. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and cheers with our malice and the chalice. I'll get us started with three bullet points in the first chapter we're going to cover in chapter 25. And then Chase is going to read it from there through. And then we're just going to bounce back and forth off each other like we always do, guys. So malice and the chalice, Chase. Let's get it rolling, baby. Malice and the chalice, brother. Cheers. And by the way, that's four chapters, not four episodes. That would be super long. <laughs> We're not going to do that to you. Did I say four episodes? Yeah, four episodes, <laughs> but it's all good. We only did that on the pilot. That was two. Oh, man. <laughs> we would never do that to you guys. That would be like 24 hours of Harry Potter yeah, no <laughs> one day. But yeah, guys, no, four chapters. And um, let's do it, man. Off to the pit of misery with you, brother. <laughs> let's do it. Sounds good. Uh any uh, bullet points you want to say or just go ahead and dive right in, man? I've got like three bullet points, you know, from page 502 to 504. And I guess I'll just let you take it from 504 through the end. But the, the three main bullet Perfect. points I have before we get to page 504 is just, you know, Harry himself is starting to have doubts about not racing Voldemort to the Elder One and choosing Horcruxes over Hallows. We're going to see if he made the right choice or not. That's a little bit of a foreshadow. Uh, page 503. Hermione tries to snap Harry out of his doubts by telling him he couldn't have violated Dumbledore's grave. Because that's what Voldemort did, right? He broke open right. Voldemort's, or, I'm sorry, Dumbledore's grave, and he took the Elder Wand, he shot the sparks in the sky. You know, Harry didn't have it in him to violate someone's final resting place, is what Hermione was telling him. And honestly, I believe she had a great point. And the last thing I'll have here before I let Chase take it through the end of the chapter is just, you know, Ron tries to convince Harry and Hermione that Dumbledore may still be alive based on all the help they received so far, what's been going on with uh, this little mirror that Harry's been seeing and what he's been seeing in it. So with that being said, I'll let Chase take the rest of this chapter from the top of page 504 all the way through to the end of 25, and we'll discuss it after that. Let's do it, man. Harry admits he could have imagined the eye. Don't you, Harry? I could have, said Harry without looking at her. But you don't think you did, do you? asked Ron. No, I don't, said Harry. 
There you go, said Ron quickly before Hermione could carry on. If it wasn't Dumbledore, explain how Dobby knew we were in the cellar, Hermione. I can't. But can you explain how Dumbledore sent him to us if he's lying in a tomb at Hogwarts? I don't know. It could have been a ghost. His ghost. Dumbledore wouldn't come back as a ghost, said Harry. There was little about Dumbledore he was sure of now, but he knew that much. He would have gone on. What do you mean, gone on? asked Ron. But before Harry could say any more, a voice behind them said, Harry? Flora had come out of the college, out of the cottage, her long silver hair flying in the breeze. Harry, Griphook, would like to speak to you. He's in smallest bedroom. He says, does not want to be overheard. Her dislike of Goblin sending her to deliver message was clear. She looked irritable. As she walked back around the house, Griphook was waiting for them. As Flora had said, and the tiniest of the cottage's three bedrooms in which Hermione and Luna slept by night. He had drawn the red cotton curtains against the bright cloudy sky, which gave the room and fiery glow at odds with the rest of the airy light cottage. I have reached my decision, Harry Potter, said the goblin, who was sitting cross-legged in a low chair, drumming its arms with his spindly fingers. Though the goblins of Gringotts will consider it base treachery, I have decided to help you. That's great, said Harry, relief surging through him. Griphook, thank you. We're really in return, said the goblin firmly, for payment. Slightly taken aback, Harry hesitated. How much do you want? I've got gold. Not gold, said Griphook. I have gold. His black eyes glittered. There were no whites to his eyes. I want the sword. The sword of Godric Gryffindor. Harry's spirits plummeted. You can't have that, he said. I'm sorry. Then, said the goblin softly, we have a problem. We can give you something else, said Ron eagerly. I'll bet the Lestranges have got loads of stuff. You can take your pick once we get into the vault. He had said the wrong thing. Griphook flushed angrily. I am not a thief, boy. I am not trying to procure, procure treasures to which I have no right. The sword's ours. It is not, said the goblin. We're Gryffindors, and it was Godric Gryffindors. And before it was Gryffindors, whose was it? Demanded the goblin, sitting up straight. No one's, said Ron. It was made for him, wasn't it? No, cried the goblin, bristling with anger as he pointed a long finger at Ron. Wizarding arrogance again. That sword was Ragnuk, the first, taken from him by Godric Gryffindor. It is a lost treasure, a masterpiece of goblin work. It belongs with the goblins. The sword is the price of my hire. Take it or leave it. Griphook glared at, at them. Harry glanced at the other two and then said, We need to discuss this, Griphook, if that's all right. Could you give us a few minutes? The goblin nodded, looking sour. Downstairs in the empty sitting room, Harry walked into the fireplace, brow furrowed, trying to think what to do. Behind him, Ron said, He's having a laugh. <laughs> we can't let him have that sword. It, it is true? Harry asked Hermione. Was the sword stolen by Gryffindor? I don't know, she said hopelessly. Wizarding history often skates over what wizards have done to other magical races, but there's no account that I know of that says Gryffindor stole the sword. It'll be one of those goblin stories, said Ron, about how the wizards are always trying to get one over them. I suppose we should think ourselves lucky he hasn't asked for our wands. Goblins have got good reason to dislike wizards, Ron, said Hermione. They've been treated brutally in the past. 
Goblins aren't exactly fluffy little bunnies, though, are they? Said Ron. They've killed plenty of us. They fought dirty, too. But arguing with Griphook about whose race is most underhanded and violent isn't going to make him more likely to help us, is it? There was a pause while they tried to think of a way around the problem. Harry looked out of the window to Dobby's grave. Luna was arranging sea lavender in a jam jar beside the headstone. Okay, said Ron. And Harry turned back to face him. How's this? We tell Griphook we need the sword until we get inside the vault, and then he can have it. There's a fake in there, isn't there? We switch them and give him the fake. Ron! He'd know the difference better than we would, said Hermione. He's the only one who realized there had been a swap. Yeah, but we could scrape her before he realizes. He, qu he quailed beneath the look Hermione was giving him. That, she said quietly, is despicable. Ask for his help and then double-cross him, and you wonder why goblins don't like wizards, Ron. Ron's ears had turned red. All right, all right. It was the only thing I could think of. What's your solution, then? We need to offer him something else, something just as valuable. Brilliant. I'll go and get one of our ancient goblin-made swords, and you can gift-wrap it. Silence fell between them again. Harry was sure that the goblin would accept nothing but the sword, even if they had said had something as valuable to offer him. Yet the sword was their one, indispensable weapon against Horcruxes. He closed his eyes for a moment or two and listened to the rush of the sea. The idea that Gryffindor might have stolen the sword was unpleasant to him. He had always been proud to be a Gryffindor. Gryffindor had been champion of Muggleborns, the wizard who had clashed with the pureblood-loving Slytherin. Maybe he's lying, Harry said. Opening his eyes again, Griphook, maybe Gryffindor didn't take the sword. How do we know the goblin version of history, right? Does it make a difference? Asked Hermione. Changes how I feel about it, said Harry. He took a deep breath. Well, tell him he can have the sword after he helped us get into the vault. In the vault. But we'll be careful to avoid telling him exactly when he can have it. A grin spread slowly across Ron's face. Hermione, however, looked alarmed. Harry, we, we can't. He can have it, Harry went on, after we used it on all of the Horcruxes. I'll make sure he gets it then. I'll keep my word. But that could be years, said Hermione. I know that, but he needn't. I won't be lying, really. Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. He remembered the words that had been engraved over the gateway to Nurmengard. For the greater good. He pushed the idea away. What choice did they have? I don't like it, said Hermione. Nor do I much, Harry admitted. Well, I think it's genius, said Ron, standing up again. Let's go and tell him. Back in the smallest bedroom, Harry made the offer, careful to phrase it, so as not to give any definite time for the handover of the sword. Hermione frowned at the floor while he was speaking, and he felt irritated at her, afraid that she might give the game away. However, Griphook had eyes for nobody but Harry. I have your word, Harry Potter. That you will give me the sword of Gryffindor if I help you. Yes, said Harry. Then shake, said the goblin, holding out his hand. Harry took it and shook. He wondered whether those black eyes saw any misgivings in his own. Then Griphook relinquished him, clapped his hands together, and said, So we begin. It was like planning to break into the ministry all over again. They settled to work in the smallest bedroom, which was kept, according to Griphook's preference, in semi-darkness. I have visited the Lestrange's vault only once, Griphook told them. 
On the occasion I was told to place inside it the false sword. It is one of the most ancient chambers. The oldest wizarding families store their treasures at the deepest letter level, where the vaults are the largest and best protected. They remain shut in the cupboard-like room for hours at a time. Slowly and days stretched into weeks, there was a problem after problem to overcome, not at least which was the only store of polyjuice potion was greatly depleted. There's really only enough left for one of us, said Hermione, tilting the thick mud-like potion against the lamplight. That'll be enough, said Harry, who was examining Griphook's hand-drawn map of the deepest passageways. The other inhabitants of Shell Cottage could hardly fail to notice that something was going on now, that Harry, Ron, and Hermione only emerged for mealtimes. Nobody asked questions, although Harry often felt Bill's eyes on the three of them at the table and thoughtful concern. The longer they spent together, the more Harry realized that he did not much like the goblin. Griphook was unexpectedly bloodthirsty, laughed at the idea of pain in lesser creatures, and seemed to relish the possibility that they might have to hurt other wizards to reach the strangest vault. Harry could tell that his distaste was shared by the other two, but they did not discuss it. They needed Griphook. The goblin ate only grudgingly with the rest of them. Even after his legs had mended, he continued to request trays of food in his room like the still frail Ollivander until Bill, following an angry outburst from Floor, went upstairs to tell him the arrangement could not continue. Thereafter, Griphook joined them at the overcrowded table, although he refused to eat the same food, insisting instead of lumps of raw meat, roots, and various fungi. Harry felt responsible. It was, after all, he who insisted the goblin remain at Shell, Co Shell Cottage so that he could question him. His fault that the whole Weasley family had been driven into hiding, that Bill, Fred, George, and Mr. Weasley could no longer work. I'm sorry, he told Floor. One blustery April evening as he helped her prepare dinner. I never meant you to have to deal with all this. She had just set some knives to work, chopping up stapes for Griphook and Bill, who had preferred his meat bloody ever since he had been attacked by Greyback. While the knives sliced away behind her, her somewhat irritable expression softened. Airy, you saved my sister's life. I don't forget. This was not strictly speaking true, but Harry decided against reminding her that Gabrielle had never been in real danger. Anyway, Floor went on, pointing her wand at a pot of sauce on the stove, which began to bubble at once. Mr. Ollivander leaves for Muriel's this evening. That will zing easier, the goblin. She scowled a little at the mention of him. Can move downstairs and you, Ron, and Dean can take that room. We don't mind sleeping in the living room, said Harry, who knew that Griphook would think poorly of having to sleep on the sofa. Keeping Griphook happily, keeping Griphook happy was essential to their plans. Don't worry about us. And when she tried to protest, he went on. We'll be off your hands soon, too, Ron, Hermione, and I. We won't need to be here much longer. But what do you mean? She said, frowning at him, her wand pointing at the casserole dish now suspended in midair. Of course you must not leave. You are safe here. She looked rather like Miss Weasley as she said it, and he was glad that the back door opened at the moment. Luna and Dean entered, their hair damp from the rain outside and their arms full of driftwood. In tiny little ears, Luna was saying, a bit like hippos, Daddy says, only purple and hairy, and if you want to call them, you have to hum. They prefer a waltz, nothing too fast. Looking uncomfortable, Dean shrugged at Harry as he passed, following Luna into the combined dining and sitting room where Ron and Hermione were laying, at, laying the dinner table. 
Seizing the chance to escape Flora's questions, Harry grabbed two jugs of pumpkin juice and followed them. And if you ever come to our house, I'll be able to show you the horn. Daddy wrote to me about it. I haven't seen it yet because the Death Eaters took from me, uh, took me from the Hogwarts Express, and I never got home from Christmas. For Christmas, Luna was saying as she and Dean relayed the fire. Luna, we told you. Hermione called over to her. The horn exploded. It came from the in a rumpet, not a crumple horn snorkack. No, it was definitely a snorkack horn," said Luna serenely. "Daddy told me it will probably have reformed by now. They men themselves, you know." Hermione shook her head and continued laying down forks as Bill appeared, leading Mister Ollivander down the stairs. The wand maker still looking exceptionally frail, and he clung to Bill's arm as the latter supported him, carrying a large suitcase. I'm going to miss you, Mr. Ollivander, said Luna, approaching the old man. And you, my dear, said Ollivander, patting her on the shoulder. You were an expressible comfort to me in that terrible place. So au revoir, Mr. Ollivander, said Flora, kissing him both on the cheeks. And I wonder whether you could oblige me to deliver a package to Bill and Aunt Auntie Muriel? I never returned her tiara. It will be an honor, said Ollivander with a little bow. The very least I could do in return for your generous hospitality. Floor drew out a worn velvet case, which she opened to show the wand maker. The tiara sat glittering and twinkling in the light from the low-hanging lamp. Moonstones and diamonds, said Grapook, who had sidled, who had sidled into the room without hearing noticing. Made by goblins, I think. And paid for by wizards, said Bill quietly, and the goblin shot him a look that was both furative and challenging. A strong wind gusted against the cottage windows as Bill and Ollivander set off into the night. The rest of them squeezed in around the table, elbow to elbow with barely enough room to move. They started to eat. The fire crackled and popped in the grate beside them. Floor Harry noticed was merely playing with her food she glanced at the window every few minutes however bill returned before they had finished their first course his long hair tangled by the wind everything's fine he told floor ollivander settled in mom and dad say hello jenny sends you all her love fred and george are driving muriel up the wall they're still operating an owl order business out of her back room it cheered her up to have her tiara back though she said she thought we'd stolen it Oh, she's a shamanty, your aunt, said Floor, crossing, waving her wand and causing the dirty plates to rise from a stack in midair. She caught them and marched out of the room. Daddy's made a tiara, piped up Luna. Well, more of a crown, really. Ron caught Harry's eyes and eye and grinned. Harry knew that he was remembered the ludicrous headdress that had seen on their first visit to Xenophilius. Yes, he's trying to recreate the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. He thinks he's identified most of the main elements now. Adding the billywig wings really made a difference. There was a bang at the front door. Everyone's head turned toward it. Floor came running out of the kitchen looking frightened. Bill jumped to his feet, his wand pointing at the door. Harry, Ron, and Hermione did the same. Silently, grip hooks slipped beneath them, beneath the table out of sight. Who is it? Bill called. It is I. Remus John Lupin called a voice over the howling wind, Harry experiencing a thrill of fear. What had happened? I am a werewolf, married in Infidora Tonks, and you, the secret keeper of Shell Cottage, told me the address and bade me come to an emergent in an emergency. Lupin, muttered Bill, and he ran to the door and wrenched it open. Lupin fell over the threshold. He was white-faced, wrapped in a traveling cloak, his graying hair windswept. 
He straightened up, looked around, making sure of who was there, then cried aloud. It is a boy. We've named it Ted after Dora's father. Hermione shrieked. What? Tonks? Tonks has had the baby? Yes, yes, she's had the baby, shouted Lupin. All around the table came cries of delight, sighs of relief. Hermione and Floor both squealed. Congratulations, said Ron. Blimey, a baby, as if he had never heard such a thing before. Yes, yes, a boy, said Lupin, who seemed dazed by his own happiness. He strode around the table and hugged Harry. The scene in the basement of Grimwald's place might never have happened. You'll be the be a godfather, he said as he released Harry. Me? stammered Harry. You, yes, of course. Dora quite agrees. No one better. I, yeah, blimey. Harry felt overwhelmed, astonished, delighted. Now Bill was hurrying to fetch wine, and Floor was persuading Lupin to join them for a drink. I can't stay long. I, I must get back, said Lupin. Beaming around at them all, he looked years younger than Harry had ever seen him. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Bill had soon filled all their goblets. They stood and raised them in a high, high in a toast. To Teddy Remus Lupin, said a Lupin. A great wizard in making. Oh, what does he look like? Flora inquired. I think he looks like Dora, but she thinks he looks like me. Not much hair. It looks it looked black when he was born, but I swear it turned ginger in an hour since. Probably be blonde by the time I get back. Andromeda says Tonk's hair started changing color the day that she was born. He drained his goblet. Oh, go on then, just one more, he added, beaming as Bill made it to fill again. The wind buffeted the little cottage and the fire leapt and crackled, and Bill was soon opening another bottle of wine. Lupin's news seemed to have taken them out of themselves, removed them for a while from their state of siege. Tidings of new life were exhilarating, only the goblins seemed untouched by the suddenly festive atmosphere, and after a while he slunk back to the bedroom he now occupied alone. Harry thought he was the only one who had noticed this until he saw Bill's eyes following the goblin up the stairs. No, no, I really must get back, said Lupin at last, declining yet another goblet of wine. He got to his feet and pulled his traveling cloak back around himself. Goodbye, goodbye. I'll try and bring some pictures in a few days' time. They'll all be so glad to know that I've seen you. He fastened his cloak and made his farewells, hugging the women and grasping hands, with the men then still beaming returned into the wild night. Godfather Harry, said Bill, as they walked into the kitchen together, helping clear the table. A real honor. Congratulations. As Harry sat down the empty goblets he was carrying, Bill pulled the door behind him closed, shutting out the still voluble voices of the others who were continuing to celebrate even in Lupin's absence. I wanted a private word, actually, Harry. It hasn't been easy to get an opportunity with the cottage this full of people, Bill hesitated. Harry, are... Harry, you're planning something with Griphook. It was a statement, not a question. Harry did not bother to deny it. He merely looked at Bill waiting. I know goblins, said Bill. I've worked for Gringotts ever since I left Hogwarts. As far as they can be friendship between wizards and goblins, I have goblin friends. Or... At least goblins I know well and like. Again, Bill hesitated. Harry, what do you want from Griphook? What have you promised him in return? I can't tell you that, said Harry. Sorry, Bill. The kitchen door opened behind them. Floor was trying to bring through more empty goblets. Wait, Bill told her. Just a moment. She backed out and he closed the door again. Then I have to say this, Bill went on. 
If you had struck any kind of bargain with Griphook, and most particularly if that bargain involves treasure, you must be exceptionally careful. Goblin notions of ownership, payment, and repayment are not the same as human ones. Here he felt a slight squirm of discomfort, as though a small snake had stirred inside him. What do you mean? he asked. We are talking about a different breed of being, said Bill. Dealings between wizards and goblins have been fought, fraught for centuries, but you'll know all of that from history and magic. There has been fault on both sides. I would never claim the wizards have been innocent. However, there is belief among some goblins, and those at Gringotts are perhaps most prone to it, that wizards cannot be trusted in matters of gold and treasure, that they have no respect for goblin ownership. I respect, Harry began, but Bill shook his head. You don't understand, Harry. Nobody could understand unless they have lived with goblins. To a goblin, the rightful and true master of any object is the maker, not the purchaser. All goblin-made objects are in goblin eyes, rightfully theirs. But if it was bought, then you, then they would consider it rented by the one who had paid the money. They have, however, great difficulty with the idea of goblin-made objects passing from wizard to wizard. You saw Griphook's face when the tiara passed under his eyes. He disapproves. I believe he thinks to do the fiercest of his kind, that it ought to have been returned to goblins once their original purchaser died. They consider our habit of keeping goblin-made objects passing them from wizard to wizard without further payment little more than theft. Here you had an ominous ominous feeling now. He wondered whether Bill guessed more than he was letting on. All I'm saying, said Bill, setting his hand on the door back into the sitting room, is to be very careful what you promise goblins, Harry. It would be less dangerous to break into green gods than to rain on a promise to a goblin. Right, said Harry, as Bill opened the door. Yeah, thanks. I'll bear that in mind. As he followed Bill back to the others, a wry thought came to him, born no doubt of the wine he had drunk. He seemed set on the course to become just as reckless as Godfather to Teddy Lupin as Sirius Black had been to him. So, man, uh, pretty important details we're finding out in this chapter. What takeaways did you have? I agree with you 100%. Like, Because we're starting to learn. We don't get the details in terms of what exactly they're planning for the, the heist, so to speak. But right. we do learn a few things that do come up important. So some of the takeaways that I have, obviously Griphook wanting Gryffindor's sword as payment if he agrees to get them into Gringotts. That's really important. It's also a foreshadow. Uh, you know, my another takeaway I always have is like, why the hell does Ron always say the wrong thing? He tries to bribe Griphook with stuff he could take from Bellatrix's <laughs> vault, basically like a thief, which event, which really offends Griphook. Like. Well, you're like, yo, you can take anything you want from Bellatrix's vault. And Griffin's like, dude, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, are you kidding me, Ron? Like, are you serious, bro? Uh, after that, uh, according to Griphook, the sword of Gryffindor is made by a goblin named Ragnuk. Uh, and Godric Gryffindor took it from him. So it's really interesting how there's different perspectives on certain items. And the, it really kind of preludes. And it doesn't go into too much detail about the conflict between goblins and wizards, I know in some interesting facts you kind of talked a little bit about the conflicts between goblins and wizards. So this is just one of the parts in the book that just very yeah. kind of sh like brushes over it a little bit. 
Uh, so it's just interesting that they, they I, I took that away from there. I was like, oh, okay, so this whole conflict is something that really goes back far from the days as long ago as Gotcha Gryffindor. So that that was a big <laughs> takeaway I had there. Um, Ron suggests that they double cross grip hook. What a little weasel, man. No pun intended, but like, yeah, yeah that was his whole plan. He's like, I say we double cross him. When we get in there, we try to f- you give him the fake sword. And everybody's like, bro, he knows the difference better than we do. What are you talking about? Like, Ron just has <laughs> no idea, no self awareness at all. Oh, man. Uh, so I, I think it was kind of cool that Harry himself decided to be a little tricksy and tell Grip Hook that he can have the sword after they get into the vault, but doesn't advise Grip Hook that. He won't give it to him until he destroys the rest of the Horcruxes. So, I mean, technically, Harry's not lying, but he's being very shady. That was another takeaway I had. Uh, the next one I have is uh, Griphook is like a bloodthirsty little fuck. Like, he liked the idea of lesser creatures <laughs> in pain and hurting wizards if necessary to get to the vault, which is ironic, seeing as he complains of wizards' treatment of goblins. So, I don't really understand... Yeah, just a little double-edged sword there, bro. Like, I don't, you know, he's complaining about something that he's okay with, but on, like the shoe being on the other foot. Interesting stuff. Um, now the next one, my boys Fred and George, they don't stop, baby. The business don't stop. They're operating their business through <laughs> owl order out of Auntie Muriel's back room. They said, you know what? Nothing, no, no little war is gonna stop us from making our galleons. We're gonna keep this business rolling out of the back room of our auntie's house. Not a problem at all. So. <laughs> But that was cool. Um, on page 513, huge foreshadow of Luna mentioning Ravenclaw's lost diadem, saying that the headdress Harry, Ron, and Hermione saw at Xenophilus' Lovegood's house uh, was his attempt at recreating it. That's going to come up to play huge next week. Uh, on top of that, we got uh, Lupin. He arrives telling them that Tonks had the baby. It's a boy, and they're naming it Ted after Tonks' late father. And Lupin actually asks Harry to be the godfather and tells him everything is all good from their blow-up fight earlier in the year and that Harry was in the right. So I thought that was cool. We're all smoothed over. Lupin and Harry back on good terms. And then uh, second to last one I have is Lupin thinking that the baby is going to be a metamorphosis like Tonks because uh, he swears the baby's hair has already been changing even as an infant being a day old. And the final one I have before I turn it over to Chase to give his takeaways of this chapter as Bill gives Harry advice and warning about dealing with goblins. And he would know firsthand because Bill has been working with goblins since he graduated Hogwarts. And he tells Harry that goblins don't think the way that wizards do and that it would be less dangerous to break into Gringotts than to go back on a promise to a goblin. So it's kind of funny. It's a little bit of foreshadow yeah. and a little bit of like alliteration and metaphor as well. So I enjoyed that. Those are the takeaways I took from that chapter. Tell me what you have. Yeah, man, you pretty much hit all of them, nailed them on the head exactly what I have. Piggybacking on what you said, too, though, like, why is it, like, Ron, he's he's 17 now, right? He's 70 years old. You would thought he would have start to develop somewhat common sense, especially since the girl he's crushing on is probably one of the smartest people at Hogwarts that ever went there. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, just give him the fake one yeah he was the one that realized it was fucking fake like what the fuck is your problem dude (laughs) yeah fuck him over it's cool man he doesn't give a fuck we don't like them anyways um how you mentioned the interesting facts we didn't talk too much about this last week but uh, because it was really a review from where we had talked about it mentioning goblins and more of like our sorcerer's stone interesting facts but just one thing that kind of started some of that controversy between wizards and goblins was 
not to go into this too much because uh, I left a lot of that out because we actually talk about it in this episode today. But um, a lot of the big reason too, of course, you know, just like Bill said, like goblins believe they were the ones that made it. They own it, right? But a lot of the big controversy with Godric too was he, uh, they sent goblins after him after he had paid for the sword and took it and he bewitched the goblins and sent him back to Griphook and tried to basically make him think they were still loyal to them, but he was still using them as like uh, for his own bidding. So it was kind of like a little bit of back and forth there, which was interesting. Um, other than that, though, just a couple little things. You did mention the diadem and all that stuff. That's good stuff. I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, Luna was still stuck on the whole like, Crumplehorn, Snorkak, <laughs> the Rumpet Horn. That was kind of like a full circle there. But otherwise, man, I'll let you take it away. I think you hit all the takeaways exactly the same ones I had. Just wanted to give Ron a little bit of a hard time there because I can't believe how he doesn't have any common sense. <laughs> Still to this point, it's just astonishing to me, I would say. But with that, man, uh, we got a huge chapter coming up. This is the action-packed moment uh this and this and one other uh i would say this really is the action-packed chapter the other big important one you're going to take for us too is a lot of information yep but i would say this is the action-packed moment of today's episode so i'm going to turn it over to jay nelly and he's going to go ahead and take us off with chapter 26 green gods you got it, brother. Sounds like a plan to me. And yeah, I'm with you, dude. We we have to give Ron a hard time because at the end of the day, like, there's nothing that he like. He lacks common sense and he lacks like tact. He like, there's not too much that he brings to the table. And I know that it, it, there's he has his shining moments, but they're few and far between. I don't understand it. And honestly, he's getting closer to 18, not even 17, because we're kind of getting closer yeah. to the springtime now. Because remember, his birthday is March 1st. And so he's getting yeah. closer to 80. I mean, like, the excuses got to start running <laughs> out for my boy Ron. So, all right. Which, let's... why can he play wizard's chess so well? That involves intellectual thinking, but yet he has no common sense. I don't know, man. Like I said, he's got his shining moments. <laughs> they are few and far between. But, you know, he actually has some big moments in this book later on down the road yeah. where he comes up big in the clutch. But. Man, it's about dang time because, honestly, you can almost make the argument that Ron's hurt the trio more than he's helped the trio. So, <laughs> I mean, he had that big moment uh, last week or uh, a couple weeks ago. So, a couple weeks ago, he had that big moment with the locket. So, like, that was really big. And he had, he's had his let's let's uh malice in the chalice i'm doing the malice in the chalice guard on ronald fucking weasley oh shit shake that ass movie ronald weasley oh yeah let's try to see so let's see so without where we're at yet now i want you to give me five major problems ron has had and five really awesome moments ron has had where he's helped the group and then we're going to decide which is worse. So go, your, your turn. Okay, uh, if I'm going to talk about the things that he's done very well, uh, let's, you know, obviously we talked about Wizard's Chest back in Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, it helped them you know, kind of get through the trials at the end before they got to Professor Quirrell where they needed to, you know, they probably wouldn't have gotten to that room without him. So that's probably his biggest shining moment to this point so far. Uh, going into man, what's the next one? 
Jeez, like it's it's so it's even hard. Maybe in Order of the Phoenix when he kind of defended <laughs> Harry about like when all the people were like calling him liars and stuff, and he was a prefect and he kind of put his foot down. It's like, yeah, if you got a problem yeah. with Harry, you know, like we can go talk about it. But remember, I'm a prefect now, so pick your battles wisely, Dean and Seamus. So I guess that was another <laughs> cool thing that he did. Uh, um, obviously, in Order as well. <laughs> He helped Harry. I mean, even then, he kind of was... He picked up that dumb brain and almost killed himself. So, it's hard for me to even say in the Battle of the Ministry <laughs> that he did anything too great. I guess the fact that he was willing to go there... Oh, no! He did have that great moment with Umbridge. Remember? That uh, uh, Hermione even like, gave uh, Ron credit. Like, you know, like, she said Ron was brilliant uh, to get them... Yeah, yeah, when he got them, like, their wands back and they were able to escape from Umbridge's office... You give like the inquisitorial squad to slip and meet them in the in the forest <laughs> where it was Neville, Luna, Harry, uh, Ginny, and Hermione and himself. So, yeah, I guess that was his next one. So yeah, so those are the, the big three so far. We've got to kind of you know put it into perspective. We got the Wizard's Chess and Sorcerer's Stone. We got him sticking up for Harry, becoming a prefect in Order of the Phoenix, and we've got uh, the fact that he was able to give the inquisitorial squad the slip, going into Half Blood Prince. Uh, you know, well, <laughs> just awful. I mean, yeah, I mean, even in Half Blood Prince, he kind of screws up. He almost dies. You know, he takes Harry's. Uh, you know, well, I'll go to the bad ones in a second. But I will say that he <laughs> has stayed back and tried to keep the Death Eaters at bay while Harry and Dumbledore were on the mission for the locket. That's pretty big, I guess. And then on, and then that's I guess that would be four. And then in this book, you can give him credit for coming up with that. Well, there's more that he does at the end. But if we're talking to this point alone, you know, yeah, we're, we're, if we're writing the contents of the novel, you know, him coming up with a story about the ghoul in the attic and covering it with Spattergroit, that was pretty good. You know, that, that was, was actually a smart thing on Ron's behalf. So those are the big five. I'll go ahead and recap it. Uh, from my, This is from my point of view. Chase might have something different. But for me, number one is Wizard's Chest. Number two, becoming a prefect and sticking up for Harry when everyone is considering him a liar. Number three, giving the Inquisitorial Squad the slip. Number four, helping uh, keep the Death Eaters at bay in Half-Blood Prince when Harry and Dumbledore went to go find the locket. And then number five, uh, coming up with the idea of uh, a ghoul, the ghoul in the attic taking on his appearance with Spattergroit. Those are the five good things. Uh, I'll let you give your five good, then I'll give my five bad, then you give your five <laughs> okay. bad, and we'll go from there. Uh, Ron never gets a break, man, but he causes it on himself. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But, yeah, I think the first big one is he had that major moment uh, when he was teaching them how to play Wizard's Chest as they were going through the different uh, – were they chambers is what they call it? The different rooms in Sorcerer's Stone, right? Yeah. Remember they went to the different, like, areas? Um, and he was teaching them how to do Wizard's Chest. I remember he's like – here he was like, he's going to sacrifice himself. It's like yeah. knight to L5 or whatever the fuck he said. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where his wizard's chest really paid off. So I would say uh, Sorcerer's Stone playing wizard's chest to take the queen, take the king and have the queen take him. That was a big moment. Uh, I guess second, this is where it really gets stuff to me. I guess <laughs> maybe the fact it's really a bad thing though i guess the fact like he came up with the idea to like take his dad's car to hogwarts so they could still get to the school when the platform was closed 
I'll let it slide. It's really bad because they also ran it into the Whomping Willow and Snape was pissed. And he was like, that's been here for, for years. <laughs> they On top of the fact. And his wand broke. <sighs> including I with the fact that all, they had, well, all he had to do was wait. Honestly, like the Weasleys come back through the barrier. <laughs> like, oh, shit, you guys are still here? Well, we'll just take you to Hogwarts ourselves. Like, he, like you know, I don't even know if that's okay, a good thing, yeah. man. Like, I don't know. Yeah, you're I, right. I, I can't. That's tough. Like, I, I would say, like, I want to give him props in Chamber of Secrets, but, like, I can't think of really anything in Chamber that he even did good. Like, I feel like all of it was shit that he did in Chamber. Uh, all right, fine. I'm not going to give him any any props on that then. So we'll stick with the Sorcerer's Stone Wizard's Chest. Uh, I guess... Uh, I mean... I guess maybe... Did he do anything good in Goblet of Fire? He argued with Hermione a shitload in Goblet of Fire. Like, what did he do that was so good in Goblet of Fire? Did he do anything good there? I was trying no. to go through the year. I was thinking maybe, like, he's done at least one every good year. But I think you're right. Like, I guess I would say Order of the Phoenix is number two. He had that massive moment in Umbridge's office. That was huge. That was great. I was going to give him props in the ministry, like you said. But, yeah, he had that moment with the brain, so that doesn't really help. I guess, uh, I mean, he's always been there for his friends. I got to give him this, though. So, Half-Blood Prince, he did win the Quidditch World Cup by himself. Why? They went and saw Grob. So, I'll give him that. I don't know if that's necessarily So, that's, that was thing. Order of the Phoenix, not, not Half-Blood Prince. That was Order, Order of the Phoenix. Phoenix. Okay, yeah. sorry. Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, so... Yeah, or half blood prince is where like he was convinced he drank the love potion and then got the, the gotcha. lucky the lucky potion lucky potion yeah so yeah. order of the phoenix he did save the quidditch world cup so i'll say sorcerer's stone uh the wizard's chest order of the phoenix he had that moment at umbridge's office and he won the uh quidditch world cup while they were gone so that was three uh four i will say that yeah i'll go with what you're saying i guess i guess in half blood friends he tried i guess he tried to keep the death eaters at bay it didn't really go that well <laughs> but he he tried i guess i mean they still got to the top of the fucking tower so like what good did you really do but i'm kind of like the car thing i'm gonna let this one slide and make it one of the good moments and then uh five he did have the courage to come back, find the group again, and actually think outside the box and wait for them and use the de-illuminator, and he destroyed the locket. So, like, that's what I'll give him for number five. But that was tougher than I thought, man. I thought he might have something going for him at this point. But let's get to the bad ones, man. Let's get to the fun part of this Malice card. All right. I mean, there's so many bad, it's hard to put, like, which... <laughs> Which, like, the thing is, so I guess we're going to start, like, at the beginning of the timeline, and we can go into Chamber of Secrets. Like, he tried to use his broken wand, like, and end up, like, cursing himself with slugs. I don't even know if I would add that as to the worst parts, honestly. Like, if I'm being really, really honest with myself, I don't even think, there, I think there's worse stuff that he did even than that. You know what? I'll say the fact that he refused to believe that 
Scabbers was Peter Pettigrew that kind of ruined everything. If he would have just gave the rad up immediately, <laughs> we might not even be in this position. Voldemort might never have come back if Ron just gives the damn rat to them right away before giving Snape time to come in there with a Billy cloak and, you know, fuck everything up. So if Ron wasn't just such, like, a pain in the ass and, like, stubborn, you know, maybe, you know, he could have really prevented Voldemort from returning. So that's one of the things I think he did really wrong. Number two, in Goblet of Fire, you know what he did? He stopped being friends with Harry because he thought Harry put his own name in the goblet. He literally, like, let his own best friend go into the first task, like, (laughs) almost kill himself in front of the dragons, and that took all of that for Ron to be like, oh, shoot, maybe I was wrong. Maybe you didn't put your name in there. So that was fucked up. Uh, Then also, in, uh, what's it called? In Order of the Phoenix, he almost kills himself with the brains. He... You know, Brandon, like, he blew up that plan from his face and made him all kind of, like, drunk in a way. And he, like, grabbed the brain. The brain almost suffocated him, which the reason why that's a problem is it almost, like, they couldn't focus on battling the Death Eaters in ministry. They had to make sure, like, Ron wasn't killing himself. Like, shoot, like, someone help Ron out. <laughs> like, someone someone take care of Ron. He can't take care of himself. So that's, like, the third bad thing. And then, what's the next one? Oh, and uh, uh, Half-Blood Prince... He eats, like, Harry's love potion cauldron cakes that Romelda Vane gave him. <laughs> Literally, like, treats his girlfriend, Lavender Brown, like, complete shit. Said, I'm going to find Romelda Vane. Like, get out of my way, Lavender. <laughs> and then, what's he do? He, he, like, ends up getting in there. He takes a drink of that, like, poisoned mead and almost dies there. Harry's got to throw the bezor down his throat and saves him. And then, oh, I don't know. In this book, what's he do? Oh, just walks out on Harry and Hermione halfway through the mission. He's like, I'm out. I don't want anything to deal with you guys. So those are just... We're done. Like, I get, We're done. <laughs> I know, man. So I would say those are probably the five worst. Uh, you know, just to recap what that was. Uh, man. Uh, the fact that he didn't give up Scabbers right away and was just so <laughs> stubborn and thought he was right about him being a pet. Uh, the next one being he uh, stopped being friends with Harry and Goblet of Fire. Basically, his friend go through the first task, almost killed him. He almost killed Harry in the first task. <laughs> then he ends up almost killing himself with the brains in the ministry. That's number three. Number four, he takes the love potion cauldron cakes and almost dies, and Harry has to put the bezel down his throat. Then number five, obviously... He walks out on Harry Hermione during like the most important part of everything, you know, just trying to <laughs> just trying to take Voldemort out. And I'm just like, you know what, you two take it from here. I'm out of here. So those are the five like really bad moments, and I say like the bad really outweighs the good to this point. <laughs> <laughs> so bad, so bad. Um, I and you know what's funny too is I was even thinking of other ones like honorable mention, like where he splinched himself, like training for apparition, but then Hermione had to fix him. Uh, like, but those aren't even that bad compared to like some of the shit he's done. <laughs> like the fact of, okay, so yeah, let's start off with number one, just like you said. Uh, remember he even uses <laughs> instead of just like trying to like. I get it. Like, his family doesn't have a lot of money. But the fact that he tried to use, like, spellotape around his broken wand and still use it? Like, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, why? Please explain. Please fucking explain. <laughs> it reminds me of the movie. You're going to put someone's eye out doing it that way. <laughs> 
That's <laughs> fucking crazy, man. Okay, so let's. I'll take that as number one. Like, he put Spellotape around his fucking one. And I'll even give him this. He crashed the fucking car into the Whomping Willow Tree. Could have killed Harry and him right there. Like, they could have gotten fucking smashed by that fucking tree. That could have been the end of the damn series, by the way. That could have been the end. Harry could have been dead. Ron could have been dead. He got a howler for that, by the way. Much deserved. Much deserved, actually. Uh, let's go to... Okay, so... And no, I cannot leave this out. It's not even that important. I cannot leave this out. I absolutely refuse. So, yeah, we will say that big one is uh, the Scabbers moment where, remember, he was causing the whole conflict with Hermione and, you know, Crookshank. So that was a big one. But this is the moment I can't leave out. And it's not even that fucking important. But, like, half blood prints, he did that little doggy battle. Like, he was trying to still make tryouts. He was so fucking bad. And he's talked about Quidditch the entire time. He's the biggest fan. He's the biggest fan. Even worse, number four in Goblet of Fire, he was the biggest fan of Victor Crumb. And then he's an entire ass to him. And then he's an ass to the one girl that actually gave him a fucking chance. <laughs> actually gave him a chance. He's the biggest fucking ass he's even an ass to his own sister whatever jenny you can go with harry <laughs> you can go with harry jenny you can go with harry jenny who gives a fuck and then finally just like you said the whole ramilda vane thing he even gets a girl that kind of gave a shit about him it was more infatuation with the love potion but even at that point he's causing fucking problems getting poisoned well, ramilda was i mean Lavender wasn't on the love potion. She liked Ron because he won the game at Quidditch. And okay, so that's liked, what it was. Like, yeah. 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 Anyways. Um, but yeah, that's that's what... It, yeah, whatever it was. Anyways, though, the fact that he's just absolutely incompetent is the, is the big deal there. He is absolutely <laughs> incompetent. Everyone that likes him... He pushes away, and I think the biggest one of all, just like you said, yeah, everyone loves him because he destroyed the locket. He destroyed that one of the biggest Horcruxes. Okay, because Harry gave you the time of day to totally redeem yourself. Hermione had every right to be pissed. He did the worst thing you could ever do. He entirely abandoned the group out of nowhere. Didn't gather himself. Didn't think about what he was doing. He just straight up abandoned their ass. So fuck you guys. I'm going home. I'm going home. Walking home. Thousands of miles away. I am walking home. That John Denver was full of shit in those Swiss Alps. I have no idea, dude. He is fucking insane. He is he's fucking needs some psychotic mental help because he is bipolar as fuck in the words of the Katy Perry song he's hot and you're cold yes then you're no you're in then you're out he's fucking up and then he's down I don't fucking know what his deal is he's he moves it like a gypsy shakes it Ronald Weasley and with that I rest my case malice in the chalice goes to the shadow realm 
Ron should definitely go to the Shadow Realm, and Hermione should have been with Draco Malfoy. I think it's absolutely absurd that she's given him like five fucking chances. <laughs> and with that, I'm gonna send it right over to you, Jay Nelly. <laughs> so the whole point of that Malice and the Chalice was to see like, has Ron been more of a uh, good companion, like someone who's been a good character throughout the series, or more of a detriment to everybody. And it seems that Chase and I are on the same page in saying he's been more of a detriment, more than a beneficiary. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, yeah, let's go ahead and, and get into this next chapter here. I'll go ahead and take us into chapter 26. Uh, this is Gringotts. There's some great action here. And I'll go ahead and kind of pull off some bullet points before I take it through the remainder of the chapter. Uh, the first bullet point I have on page 519... Uh, Hermione, with the last bit of Polyjuice Potion they have left, is going to take the form of Bellatrix Lestrange. And when Bellatrix was torturing Hermione back at Malfoy Manor, a strand of her hair was left on Hermione's clothes, which was how she was able to do it. And it was made complete with the fact that they took Bellatrix's wand as well, so it's as solid as it's going to get, right? That's the best way you can impersonate Bellatrix Lestrange, is that, you know, you take her on her appearance and you have her wand. The issue is, it's going to come up to bite them in a way, because everyone knows... Something happened at Malfoy Manor, and uh, I don't want to give too much away from myself and my point that I'm bringing up there, so I'll make sure to talk about Full Circle when I get to it in this chapter. But uh, that wand thing is going to come up big in a second. Uh, 521, we learn that they lost their old tent when the Snatchers caught them, and that Bill lends them another one to use, you know, to kind of continue on with their journey. So that was a pretty cool moment. Uh, also on page 521, we learn that Hermione kept her beaded bag by stuffing it down her sock when they were caught by the Snatchers and taken to Malfoy Manor. So she kept the beaded bag and all the important stuff. Go Way to go, Hermione. I think we can all conclude that Hermione has been better to the team than Ron has <laughs> over the years. So, anyways. <laughs> page 521. Griphook wouldn't leave Harry, Ron, and Hermione alone for more than five minutes at a time. So it seems like he was expecting some sort of treachery from them, which is good foreshadow uh five, page 522 harry feels bad about leaving dobby behind because the house elf used his final act to save their life you know that is a big thing man it's a little bit of guilt uh anyways page 523 hermione uses magic to disguise ron since she took the last of the polyjuice potion and harry and grip hook would be under the invisibility cloak so this is all essential to the plan so Harry's going to be there with Grip Hook on Harry. Grip Hook's going to be on Harry's shoulder. They're both going to be underneath the invisibility cloak. Hermione's going to be taking the form of Bellatrix Lestrange with Bellatrix's wand. And Hermione also disguised Ron to kind of look like an accomplice or someone that she knew that obviously doesn't resemble Ron Weasley at all. So that way, they're going to be as safe as they can get at this point in time. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and take it from page 524 all the way through the remainder of the chapter. And I'll go ahead and... And start now. Harry turned on the spot with Grip Hook on his shoulders, concentrating with all his might on the leaky cauldron, the inn that was the entrance to Diagon Alley. The goblin clung even tighter as they moved into the compressing darkness, and seconds later, Harry's feet found pavement and he opened his eyes on Charing Cross Road. Muggles bustled past wearing their hangdog expressions of early morning, quite unconscious of the little inn's existence. The bar of the leaky cauldron was nearly deserted. Tom, the stooped and toothless landlord, was polishing glasses behind the bar counter. A couple of warlocks, having a muttered conversation in the far corner, glanced at Hermione and drew back into the shadows. Madame Lestrange, murmured Tom, and as Hermione passed, he inclined his head subserviently. Good morning, said Hermione, and as Harry crept past, still carrying Griphook piggyback under the cloak, 
He saw Tom look surprised. Too polite, Harry whispered in Hermione's ear as they passed out of the inn into the tiny backyard. You need to treat people like they're scum. Okay, okay. Hermione drew out Bellatrix's wand and tapped a brick in the nondescript wall in front of them. At once, the bricks began to whirl and spin. A hole appeared in the middle of them, which grew wider and wider, finally forming an archway onto the narrow cobbled street that was Diagon Alley. It was quiet, barely time for the shops to open, and there were hardly any shoppers abroad. The crooked, cobbled street was much alerted now from the bustling place Harry had visited before his first term at Hogwarts so many years before. More shops than ever were boarded up, though several new establishments dedicated to the dark arts had been created since his last visit. Harry's own face glared down at him from posters plastered over many windows, always captioned with the words, Undesirable Number One. A number of ragged people sat huddled in doorways, hear them moaning to the few passerbys pleading for gold, insisting that they were really wizards. One man had a bloody bandage over his eye. And as they set off along the street, the beggars glimpsed Hermione, and they seemed to melt away before her, drawing hoods over their faces and fleeing as fast as they could. Hermione looked after them curiously until the man with the bloodied bandage came staggering right across her path. My children, he bellowed, pointing at her. His voice was cracked, high-pitched, which sounded distraught. Where are my children? What has he done with them? You know, you know. I, I, really, stammered Hermione. And the man lunged at her, reaching for her throat. Then with a bang and a burst of red light, he was thrown backward onto the ground and unconscious. Ron stood there, his wand still outstretched, and a look of shock visible from beneath his beard. Faces appeared at the windows on either side of the street. While a little knot of preposterous-looking passerbys gathered their robes about them and broke into gentle trots, keen to vacate the scene. Their entrance to Diagon Alley could hardly have been more conspicuous, and for a moment, Harry wondered whether it might not be better to leave and try to think of a different plan. But before they could move or consult one another, however, they heard a cry from behind them. Why, Madame Lestrange! Harry rolled around and grew up a tightness hold around Harry's neck. A tall, thin wizard with a crown of bushy gray hair and a long, sharp nose was striding toward them. It's Travers, whispered the goblin into Harry's ear. But at that moment, Harry could not think who Travers was. Hermione had drawn herself up to the fullest height and said with as much contempt as she could muster, And what do you want? Travers stopped dead in his tracks, clearly affronted. He's another Death Eater, breathed Griphook, and Harry sidled sideways to repeat the information to Hermione's ear. I merely sought to greet you, said Travers coolly. But if my presence is not welcome... Harry recognized his voice. Travers is one of the Death Eaters who had been summoned to Xenophilius's house. No, no, not at all, Travers, said Hermione quickly, trying to cover up her mistake. How are you? Well, I confess I am surprised to see you out and about, Bellatrix. Really? Why? asked Hermione. Well, Travers coughed, I heard that the inhabitants of Malfoy Manor were confined to the house after the, uh, escape. Harry willed Hermione to keep her head. If this was true and Bellatrix was not supposed to be out in public, the Dark Lord forgives those who have served him most faithfully in the past said Hermione in a magnificent imitation of Bellatrix's most contemptuous manner. Perhaps her credit is not as good with him as mine is, Travers. Though the Death Eater looked offended, he also seemed less suspicious. He glanced down at the man Ron had just stunned. How did it offend, how did it offend you? It does not matter. It will not do so again, said Hermione coolly. Some of these wandless can be troublesome, said Travers. While they do nothing but beg... I have no objection, but one of them actually asked me to plead her case at the ministry last week. 
I'm a witch, sir. I'm a witch. Let me prove it to you, he said in a squeaky impersonation, as if I was going to give her my wand. But whose wand, said Travers curiously, are you using at the moment, Bellatrix? I heard that your own was... I have my wand here, said Hermione coolly, holding up Bellatrix's wand. I don't know what rumors you've been listening to, Travers, but you seem sadly misinformed. Travers seemed a little taken aback at that and turned and said to Ron, Who's your friend? I do not recognize him. This is Dragomir Despard, said Hermione. They had decided that a fictional foreigner was the safest cover for Ron to assume. He speaks very little English, but he is in sympathy with the Dark Lord's aims. He has traveled here from Transylvania to see our new regime. Indeed. How do you do, Dragomir? How are you? said Ron, holding out his hand. Travis extended two fingers and shook Ron's hand as though frightened of dirtying himself. So what brings you and your uh, sympathetic friend to Diagon Alley this early? said Travers. I need to visit Gringotts, said Hermione. Alas, I also, said Travers. Gold. Filthy gold! We cannot live without it. Yet I confess I deplore the necessity of consorting with our long-fingered friends. Harry felt Griphook's clasp hands tighten momentarily around his neck. Shall we? said Travers, gesturing Hermione forward. Hermione had no choice but to fall and step beside him and head along the crooked, cobbled street toward the place where the snowy white Gringotts stood towering over the other little shops. Ron sloped along beside them. Harry and Griphook followed. A watchful Death Eater was the very last thing they needed, and the worst of it was, with Travers marching at what he believed to be Bellatrix's side, there was no means for Harry to continue to communicate with Ron or Hermione. All too soon, they had arrived at the foot of the marble steps leading up to the great bronze doors. As Griphook had already warned them, the liveried goblins who usually flanked the entrance had been replaced by two wizards, both of whom were long, clutching, both of whom were clutching long, thin, golden rods. Ah, probity probes, sighed Travers theatrically. So crude, but effective. And he set up the steps, nodding left and right to the wizards, who raised the golden rods and passed them up and down his body. The probes, Harry knew, detected spells of concealment and hidden magical objects. Knowing that he only had seconds, Harry pointed Draco's wand at each of the guards in turn and muttered, Confundo! Twice. Unnoticed by Travers, who was looking through the bronze door at the inner hall, each of the guards gave a little start as the spells hit them. Hermione's long black hair rippled behind her as she climbed through the steps. One moment, madam, said the guard, raising his probe. But you've just done that, said Hermione in Bellatrix's commanding, arrogant voice. Travers looked around, eyebrows raised. The guard was confused. He stared down at the thin golden probe and then at his companion, who said in a slightly dazed voice, Yeah, you've just checked them, Marius. Hermione swept forward, Ron by her side, and Harry and Griphook trotting invisibly behind them. Harry glanced back as they crossed the threshold. The wizards were both scratching their heads. Two goblins stood before the inner doors, which were made of silver, and which carried the poem of warning of dire retribution to the potential thieves. Harry looked up at it, and all of a sudden a knife-sharp memory came to him, standing on this very spot on the day that he had turned eleven, the most wonderful birthday of his life, and Hagrid standing beside him saying, Like I said, you'd be mad to try and rob it. Gringotts had seen a place of wonder that day, the enchanted repository of trove of gold he had never known he'd possessed, and never for an instant could he have dreamed that he returned to steal, but within seconds they were standing in the vast marble hall of the bank. The long counter was manned by goblins sitting on high stools, serving the first customers of the day. 
Hermione, Ron, and Travers headed toward an old goblin who was examining a thick gold coin through an eyeglass. Hermione allowed Travers to step ahead of her on the pretext of explaining the features, to Ron, the features of the hall to Ron. The goblin tossed the coin he was holding aside and said to nobody in particular, Leprechaun, then greeted Travers who passed over a tiny golden key which was examined and given back to him. Hermione stepped forward. Madam Lestrange, said the goblin, evidently startled. Dear me, how, how may I help you today? I wish to enter my vault, said Hermione. The old goblin seemed to recoil a little. Harry glanced around. Not only was Travers hanging back watching, but several other goblins had looked up from their work to stare at Hermione. You have identification? asked the goblin. Identification? I, I have never been asked for identification before, said Hermione. They know, whispered Goodpook in Harry's ear. They must have been warned there might be an imposter. Your wand will do, madam, said the goblin. He held out a slightly trembling hand and a dreadful blast of realization. Harry knew that the goblins of Gringotts were aware that Bellatrix's wand had been stolen. And quick side note before I continue, this is exactly the full circle moment I was talking about from the beginning of the chapter where Bellatrix's wand was going to come up and play a big role here. So that's a little full circle for you. Act now, act now, whispered Griphook in Harry's ear. The imperious curse. Harry raised the hawthorn wand beneath the cloak, pointed it at the old goblin, and whispered for the first time in his life, Imperio! A curious sensation shot down Harry's arm, a feeling of tingling warmth that seemed to flow from his mind, down the sinews and veins connecting him to the wand and the curse that it had just cast. The goblin took Bellatrix's wand, examined it closely, and said, Ah, you have had a new one made, Madame Lestrange. What? said Hermione. No, no, that's mine. A new one, said Travers, approaching the counter again, still with the goblins all around watching. But how could you have done? Which wand maker did you use? Harry acted without thinking. Pointing his wand at Travers, he muttered, Imperio, once more. Oh, yes, I see, said Travers, looking down at Bellatrix's wand. Yes, very handsome, and is it working well? I always think wands require a little breaking in, don't you? Hermione looked utterly bewildered, but to Harry's enormous relief, she accepted the bizarre turn of events without comment. The old goblin behind the counter clapped his hands, and the younger goblin approached. I shall need the clankers, he told the goblin, who dashed away and returned a moment later with a leather bag that seemed to be full of jangling metal, which he handed to his senior. Good, good, so if you will follow me, Madame Lestrange, said the old goblin, hopping down off his stool and vanishing from sight, I shall take you to your vault. He appeared around the end of the corner, jogging happily towards them with the contents of the leather bag still jingling. Travers was now standing quite still with his mouth hanging wide open. Ron was drawing attention to this odd phenomenon by regarding Travers with confusion. Wait, Bogrod! Another goblin came scurrying around the corner. We have instructions, he said with a bow to Hermione. Forgive me, madam, but there have been special orders regarding the vault of Lestrange. He whispered urgently into Bogrod's ear, but the imperious goblin shook him off. I am aware of the instructions. Madame Lestrange wishes to visit her vault. Very old family. Old clients. This way, please. And still clanking, he hurried toward one of the many doors leading off the hall. Harry looked back at Travers, who was still deep-rooted to the spot, looking abnormally vacant, and made his decision. With a flick of his wand, he made Travers come with them, walking meekly in their wake as they reached the door and passed into the rough stone passageway beyond, which was lit with flaming torches. We're in trouble. They suspect, said Harry, as a door slammed behind them and he pulled off the invisibility cloak. Griphook jumped down from his shoulders. Neither Travers nor Bogrod showed the slightest surprise at the sudden appearance of Harry Potter in their midst. 
They're imperious, he added, in response to Hermione and Ron's confused queries about Traver and Bogrod, who are both now standing there looking blank. I don't think I did it strongly enough. I, I don't know. And then another memory darted through his mind, the real Bellatrix Lestrange shrieking at him when he had first tried to use an unforgivable curse. You need to mean them, Potter. What do we do? asked Ron. Shall we get out now while we can? If we can, said Hermione, looking back toward the door into the main hall, beyond which who knew what was happening. We've got this far. I say we go on. Good, said Griphook. Now, we need Bogrod to control the cart. I no longer have the authority, but there will not be room for the wizard. Harry pointed his wand at Travers. Imperio! The wizard turned and set off along the dark track at a smart pace. What are you making him do? Hide, said Harry as he pointed his wand at Bogrod, who whistled to summon a little cart that came trundling along the tracks towards them out of the darkness. Harry was sure he could hear shouting behind them in the main hall as they all clambered into it. Bogrog in front of the grip hook, Harry, Ron, and Hermione crammed together in the back. With a jerk, the cart moved, gathering speed. They hurtled past Travers, who was wriggling into a crack in the wall. Then the cart began twisting and turning through the labyrinth passages, sloping downward all the time. Harry could not hear anything over the rattling of the cart on the tracks. His hair flew behind him as they swerved between stalactites, flying ever deeper into the earth, but he kept glancing back. They might as well have left enormous footprints behind them. The more he thought about it, the more foolish it seemed to have disguised Hermione as Bellatrix, to have brought along Bellatrix's wand when the Death Eaters knew who had stolen it. They were deeper than Harry had ever penetrated within Gringotts. They took a hairpin bend at a speed and saw ahead of them, with seconds to spare, a waterfall pounding over the track. Harry heard Griphook shout, No! But there was no breaking. They zoomed through it. Water filled Harry's eyes and mouth. He could not see or breathe. Then, with an awful lurch, the cart flipped over and they were all thrown out of it. Harry heard the cart smash into pieces against the passage wall, heard Hermione shriek something, and felt himself glide toward the ground as though weightless, landing painlessly on the rocky passage floor. Cushioning charm, Hermione spluttered as Ron pulled her to her feet, but to Harry's horror, he saw that she was no longer Bellatrix. Instead, she stood there in overlarge robes, sopping wet and completely herself. Ron was red-haired and beardless again, and they were realizing it as they looked at each other, feeling their own faces. The thief's downfall, said Griphook, clambering to his feet and looking back at the deluge on the tracks, which Harry knew now had been more than water. It washes away all enchantment, all magical concealment. They know there are imposters and gringots. They have set off defenses against us. Harry saw Hermione checking that she still had the beaded bag and hurriedly thrust his own hand under his jacket to make sure he had not lost the invisibility cloak. Then he turned to Bogrod, shaking his head in bewilderment. The thief's downfall seemed to have lifted the Imperius curse. We need him, said Griphook. We cannot enter the vault without a Gringotts goblin, and we need the clankers. Imperio, Harry said again, his voice echoed through the stone passage as he felt again the sense of heady control that flowed from brain to wand. Bogrod submitted once more to his will. He befuddled expression, changing to one of polite indifference as Ron hurried to pick up the leather bag of metal tools. Harry, I think I can hear people coming, said Hermione, and she pointed Bellatrix's wand at the waterfall and cried, Protego! They saw a shield charm break the flow of the enchanted water as it flew up the passageway. Good thinking, said Harry. Lead the way, Griphook. How are we going to get out again? Ron asked as they hurried on, the, on foot into the darkness after the goblin, Bogrod panting in their wake like an old dog. Let's worry about that when we have to, said Harry. He was trying to listen. He thought he could hear something clanking and moving around nearby. Griphook, how much farther? Not far, Harry Potter not far. And then they turned a corner and saw the thing for which Harry had been prepared, but which still brought all of them to a halt. 
a gigantic dragon was tethered to the ground in front of them, barring access to four or five of the deepest vaults in the place. The beast scales had turned pale and flaky during its long incarceration under the ground. Its eyes were milkily pink. Both rear legs bore heavy cuffs, from which chains led to enormous pegs driven deep into the rocky floor. Its great spiked wings folded close to its body, would have filled the chamber if it spread them. And when it turned its ugly head towards them, it roared with a noise that made the rock tremble, opened its mouth, and spat a jet of fire that sent them running back up the passageway. It is partially blind, panted Griphook, but even more savage for that. However, we have the means to control it, and has learned what to expect when the clankers come. Give them to me. Ron passed the bag to Griphook, and the goblin pulled out a number of small metal instruments that, when shaken, made a loud ringing noise like miniature hammers on anvils. Griphook handed them out. Bograd accepted his meekly. You know what to do, Griphook told Harry, Ron, and Hermione. It will expect pain when it hears this noise. It will retreat, and Bograd must place his palm upon the door of the vault. They advanced around the corner again, shaking the clankers, and the noise echoed off the rocky walls, grossly magnified, so the inside of Harry's skull seemed to vibrate within the din. The dragon let out another hoarse roar, then retreated. Harry could see it trembling as they drew near. He saw the scars made visible through the vicious slashes across its face, and guessed that it had been taught to fear hot swords when it heard the sound of the clankers. Make him press his hand to the door, Griphook urged Harry, who turned his wand again upon Bogrod. The old goblin obeyed, pressing his palm to the wood, and the door of the vault melted away to reveal a cave-like opening crammed from floor to ceiling with golden coins and goblets, silver armor, the skins of strange creatures, some with long spines, others with drooping wings, potions and jeweled flasks, and a skull still wearing a crown. Search fast, said Harry, as they all hurled inside the vault. He had described Hufflepuff's cup to run... He had described Hufflepuff's cup to Ron and Hermione, but if it was the other unknown Horcrux that resided in this vault, he did not know what it looked like. He had barely time to glance around, however, before there was a muffled clunk from behind them. The door had reappeared, sealing them inside the vault, and they were plunged into total darkness. No matter, Bogrod will be able to release us, said Griphook as Ron gave a shout of surprise. Light your wands, can't you? And hurry, we have very little time. Lumos! Harry shone his lit wand around the vault. Its beam fell upon glittering jewels. He saw the fake sword of Gryffindor lying on a high shelf amongst the jumble of chains. Ron and Hermione had lit their wands too and were now examining the piles of objects surrounding them. Harry, could this be... Ah! Hermione screamed in pain. And Harry turned his wand on, on her in time to see a jeweled goblet tumbling from her grip. But as it fell, it split and became a shower of goblets. So that a second later, with a great clatter, the floor was covered in identical cups rolling in every direction the original impossible to discern amongst them. It burned me, moaned Hermione, suckling her blistering fingers. They have added gemino and flagrant curses, said Griphook. Everything you touch will burn and multiply, but the copies are worthless, and if you continue to handle the treasure, you will eventually be crushed to death by the weight of expanding gold. Okay, don't touch anything, said Harry desperately, but even as he said it, Ron accidentally nudged one of the falling goblets with his foot, and twenty more exploded into being while Ron hopped on the spot, part of a shoe burned away by contact with the hot metal. Stand still, don't move, said Hermione, clutching at Ron. Just look around, said Harry. Remember, the cup's small, and it's gold, and it's got a badger engraved on it. Two handles. Otherwise, see if you can spot Ravenclaw's symbol anywhere, the eagle. They directed their wands in every nook and crevice, turning cautiously on the spot. It was impossible not to brush up against anything. Harry sent a ca great cascade of fake galleons onto the ground, where they joined the goblets. 
and now there was scarcely room to place her feet, and the glowing gold blazed with heat so that the vault felt like a furnace. Harry's wand light passed over the shields and golem-made helmets, sat on shelves rising to the ceiling. Higher and higher, he raised the beam until suddenly it found an object that made his heart skip and made his hand tremble. It's there! It's up there! Ron and Hermione pointed their wands at it too, so that the little golden cup sparkled in a three-way spotlight. The cup that had, been, that had belonged to Helga Hufflepuff, which had passed into the possession of Hepzibah Smith, from whom it had been stolen by Tom Riddle. How the hell are we going to get up there without touching anything? Accio Cup! cried Hermione, who had evidently forgotten in her desperation what Griphook had told them during their planning sessions. No use! No use! snarled the goblin. Then what do we do? said Harry, glaring at the goblin. If you want the sword, Griphook, then you'll have to help us more than that. Wait! Can I touch stuff with the sword? Hermione, give it here. Hermione fumbled the inside of her robes, drew out the beaded bag, rummaged for a few seconds, then removed the shining sword. Harry seized it by its rubied hilt and touched the tip of the blade to a silvery flagon nearby, which did not multiply. If I can just poke the sword through the handle, but how am I going to get up there? The shelf on which the cup reposed was out of reach for any of them, even Ron, who was the tallest. The heat from the enchanted treasure rose in waves and sweat ran down Harry's face and back, and he struggled to think of a way up to the cup. And then he heard the dragon roar on the other side of the vault door and the sound of clanking growing louder and louder. They were truly trapped now. There was no way out, except through the door, and a horde of goblins seemed to be approaching on the other side. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione and saw terror in their faces. Hermione, said Harry as the clanking grew louder, I've got to get up there. We've got to get rid of it. She raised her wand, pointed at Harry, and whispered, Levicorpus! Hoisted into the air by his ankle, Harry hit a suit of armor, and Rubicus burst out of it like white-hot bodies, filling the cramped space. With screams of pain, Ron and Hermione and the two goblins were knocked aside into other objects, which also began to replicate. Half buried in a rising tide of red-hot treasure, they struggled and yelled as Harry thrust the sword through the handle of Hufflepuff's cup, hooking it onto the blade. Impervious! Hermione screeched in an attempt to protect herself. Ron and the goblins from the burning metal. Then, the worst scream yet made Harry look down. Ron and Hermione were waist-deep in treasure, struggling to keep Bogrod from slipping beneath the rising tide, but Griphook had sunk out of sight, and nothing but the tips of a few long fingers were left in view. Harry seized Griphook's fingers and pulled. The blistering goblin emerged by degrees, howling. Libera corpus! yelled Harry, and with a crash, he and Griphook landed on the surface of the swelling treasure, and the sword flew out of Harry's hand. Get it! Harry yelled, fighting the pain of the hot metal on his skin, as Griphook clambered onto his shoulders again, determined to avoid the swelling mass of red-hot objects. Where's the sword? It had the cup on it! The clanking on the other side was growing deafening. It was too late. There! It was Griphook who had seen it, and Griphook who had lunged. And in that instant, Harry knew that the goblin had never expected them to keep their word. One hand holding tightly to a fistful of Harry's hair to make sure he did not fall into the heaving sea of burning gold, Griphook seized the hilt of the sword, swung it high out of Harry's reach. The tiny gold cup skewered by the handle on the sword's blade was flung into the air. The goblin still astride him. Harry dived and caught it, and although he could feel it scalding his flesh, he did not relinquish it, even while countless Hufflepuff cups burst from his fists, raining down upon him as the entrance of the vault opened up again, and he found himself sliding uncontrollably on an expanding avalanche of fiery gold and silver that bore him, Ron Hermione, into the chamber, into the outer chamber. Hardly aware of the pain from the burns covering his body, and still borne along the swell of its replicating treasure, Harry sh shoved the cup 
into his pocket and reached up to retrieve the sword, but Griphook was gone. Sliding from Harry's shoulders the moment he could, he had sprinted for cover amongst the surrounding goblins, brandishing the sword, crying, Thieves! Thieves! Help! Thieves! He vanished into the midst of the advancing crowd, all of whom were holding daggers and who accepted him without question. Slipping on the hot metal, Harry struggled to his feet and knew that the only way out was through. Stupefy, he bellowed, and Ron and Hermione joined in. Jets of red light flew into the crowd of goblins. Some toppled over, but others advanced, and Harry saw several wizard guards running through the corner. The tethered dragon let out a roar, and a gush of flame flew over the goblins. The wizards fled, doubled up, back the way they had come, and inspiration or madness came to Harry. Pointing his wand at the thick cuffs, chaining the beast to the floor, he yelled, Relicio! The cuffs broke with loud bangs. This way, Harry yelled, and still shooting stunning spells at the advancing goblins, he sprinted towards the blind dragon. Harry! Harry, what are you doing? cried Hermione. Get up. Climb up. Come on. The dragon had not realized it was free. Harry's foot found the crook of its hind leg as he pulled himself up onto its back. The scales were hard as steel. It, did not even, it didn't even seem to feel him. He stretched out an arm. Hermione hoisted herself up. Ron climbed behind them, and a second later, the dragon became aware that it was untethered. With a roar, it reared. Harry dug in his knees, clutching tightly as he could to the jagged scales as the wings opened, knocking the shrieking goblins aside like skittles, and it soared into the air. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, flat on its back, scraped against the ceiling as it dived towards the passage opening, while the pursuing goblins hurled daggers that glanced off its flanks. We'll never get out! It's too big! Hermione screamed, but the dragon opened its mouth and belched flame again, blasting the tunnel whose floors and ceilings cracked and crumbled. By sheer force, the dragon clawed and fought its way through. Harry's eyes were shut tight against the heat and dust. Deafened by the crashing of rock and the dragon's roars, he could only cling to its back, expecting to be shaken off at any moment. Then he heard Hermione yelling, Defoidio! She was helping the dragon enlarge the passageway, carving out the ceiling as it struggled upwards towards the fresher air, away from the shrieking and clanking goblins. Harry and Ron copied her, blasting the ceiling apart with more gouging spells. They passed the underground lake and the great crawling. The snarling beast seemed to sense freedom and space ahead of it, and behind them the passage was full of drag the dragon's thrashing, spiked tail of great lumps of rock gigantic fractured stalactites, and with the clanking of the goblins seemed to be growing more muffled, while ahead, the dragon's fire kept their progress clear. And then at last, combined by the com at last, by the combined force of their spells and the dragon's brute strength, they had blasted their way out of the passage into the marble hallway. Goblins and wizards shrieked and ran for cover, and finally the dragon had room to stretch its wings. Turning its horned head towards the cool outside air, it could smell beyond the entrance. It took off. And with Harry, Ron, and Hermione still clinging to its back, it forced its way through the metal doors, leaving them buckled and hanging from their hinges as it staggered into Diagon Alley and launched itself into the sky. And that takes that us has. to the end of chapter 26. So since I kind of really belted into that and gave it all I had, I'm going <laughs> to let Chase go ahead and give away his takeaways from this chapter and then i'll do mine afterwards and we'll move on into chapter 27 yeah man badass chapter side note if you have um the either the deluxe edition of the american version of harry potter or the british edition so on the covers though this is that iconic moment so on the british version uh like i have here on the visuals you see harry ron and hermione and they're being suffocated by the gold 
Uh, and then on the deluxe edition, you see the big dragon like I have here that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are on on this uh, Funko on the side. But um, yeah, a lot of stuff in that chapter. I think you hit the bullet points really well all the way up into um, the point where you left off and took the chapter going up to page like 524. Just a couple extra side things. Um, so I did like, I thought it was kind of cool, like Ron's like name they give him is like Dragomir Desipard from Transylvania, I guess because it, I don't know, I kind of thought it was interesting, kind of like ironic because Travers and Transylvania, <laughs> like it wasn't important, I just thought it was kind of cool. Um, then I did think this was a really cool full circle moment on page uh, 530 in the middle where Harry was remembering standing in that same spot on his 11th birthday. And then of course, Hagrid was said, you, uh, you know, you'd be basically like a fool to try to rob it. Like, uh, no one should try to rob this thing. So that was a pretty cool full circle moment there. Uh, which is so wild that we have that foreshadowing moment, uh, so far before this book was ever released. So, um, Imperio, you know, Harry using the Imperius curse. Uh, that was a pretty big one uh, for the first time he ever used that. And then he used it twice. And, uh, you know, the whole time, of course, well, I'll tell you my impact moment. But, of course, the guy that's guiding them, <laughs> really, this whole thing is a trap. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I thought, you know, it was kind of interesting how they used. I thought it was interesting how like Bogrod, they wanted to use him because he's the specific one that had to open the vault. Uh, just like you said, the wand for Bellatrix, like that's huge. Uh, so that's cool. I loved how, you know, they had to use the Polyjuice Potion and Hermione went as Bellatrix. So that was such a full circle moment there. Um, is in uh, just like, uh, you know, even another full circle moment was when Harry was using the Unforgivable Curses he thought of Bellatrix Lestrange telling him, uh, you need to mean them, Potter, because he didn't feel like it was working. And that was on page 533. So kind of a full circle moment from my favorite book on uh, uh, on Order of the Phoenix. Um, then, uh, you know, I thought this was pretty uh, action-packed. Remember the cart, like, uh, smashed into pieces. And then Hermione being, of course, always saving the day like she does thinking ahead of things doing the cushioning charm to kind of save them there and then of course uh the i guess it was like the deluge i guess is what they call it it's like that water thing whatever it was that washed the polyjuice potion off what do you call that thing the thief's like downfall kind of thing it's called the thief's downfall is what the waterfall was called oh okay got the thief's downfall i wasn't sure if it had like a name for it though if it was like a specific waterfall or that was the name of it that's why like, you guys read it it has it in like the capital letters for like the naming of an object it's called the thief's downfall that's what the waterfall's name is gotcha um and then uh i thought it was cool how i guess oh uh, i thought this was really a cool moment because you kept kind of wondering what clankers were and then you find out when you see the dragons blind and that's how they like control it because um, it, it ha feels pain for sound uh, because it hears basically it hurts its ears. Um, and then as far as uh, 
Well, let, let, me, let me step page. in there real quick because I want to make sure people understand this. It doesn't hurt its ears. What it is, it's like negative conditioning, kind of like Pavlov's dogs, where every time it hears the clankers, it comes to expect pain. That's why I said it had like scars and gash marks where like hot swords would have been used against it every time the clankers were sounding. So it associates okay. the sound of the clankers with pain, not that the clankers themselves hurt the dragon's ears. Just want to make sure that that was clear. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, where he says exact quote, you're right. Like, it will expect pain when it hears noise. And that's on page 536. Um, other than that, I thought it was cool, I guess. Uh, this is when we really get into the action here. But um, as far as when they actually get into the vault, I thought it was genius how, you know, they have the charms on there. Uh, the Gemino and flagrant curses that are on there that multiply the gold and then grip hook even says you know you'll be crushed to death by the weight of the expecting expanding gold uh, which is was like really cool to have those curses in there so you can tell they you know they protect this thing uh, to the nth degree <laughs> like every detail is covered there um, and then of course when they see the goblet that's huge because it was like all the way at the top and the way to get that and then of course they use the sword of gryffindor to try to like grab it as hermione casts like levio's corpus to shoot harry in the air so that was pretty cool um and then of course uh the dragon like comes in handy as uh, they're trying to get the goblet and escape but at the same time this whole thing has been a trap because of course grip hook is like takes the sword and shouts thieves thieves and really this is what bill was trying to almost warn him about like the entire time um and you know it's pretty shitty <laughs> like what a deal that was um and yeah really full circle moment there um and as far as that goes i mean of course it, i thought it was kind of cool that they you know she casted that new charm that we heard what was how do you say it? it's like diffido or something i wrote it down it was like new curse she did as she was like expanding the defoidio dragon yeah defoidio yeah, yeah yeah correct yeah uh so i thought that was cool and they used the dragon to basically like you know blast their way out as harry realizes there's no way out and he's stupefying everybody with harry hermione and ron because they're trapped and it, it was so cool like how the goblins were like coming in because he you know grip hook had betrayed them the whole time and uh it was it was really awesome so yeah those were just my major takeaways what about you man so i i just disagree just to a certain point i don't think that it was a trapped the whole time i think grip hook planned to uh, betray them but i don't think that the green gods employees were in on it i don't think he like contacted them ahead of time was like hey i'm bringing these people in i think it turned out like grip hook kind of realized halfway through that the chances of them getting out of there as a team was like really unlikely so it was almost like self-preservation like screw you guys you guys are getting caught i'm getting away with the sword of gryffindor fuck y'all and so when they got out of there he's like thieves thieves and like you know so it's like they it almost made it seem as if Harry, Ron, and Hermione like also put the Imperious Curse on Griphook as well as Bogrod to help them get into there. So it was more like self-preservation more than I think that the Green Gods employees were in on the trap the whole time to get them down there. Uh, but that's just that part. The other takeaways I do have 
Uh, I thought it was kind of cool just from the beginning of the chapter how there were several new establishments dedicated to the dark arts. They now exist, you know, because Diagon Alley, the, the, a bunch of old businesses are boarded up from people who used to, like, support the Order of the Phoenix or the good guys, so to speak. So now everyone's kind of scared and it's kind of like a ghost town and it's more of, you know, almost seems like Nocturne Alley in a way with all these yeah. boarded up shops and new dark arts uh, things existing, right? So then uh, next one I have is Hermione almost blows it. Of all things she's great at, she's never been good at make-believe. She was too polite to Tom, the barman. Then she was <laughs> yeah. too mean to Travers, the fellow Death Eater. So, like, she's terrible at making stuff up on the spot. Like, remember when she tried to do that back, uh, like, in uh, Half-Blood Prince where she went into Borgen and Burks and tried <laughs> to convince the guy, like, hey, Malfoy's my friend. I just want to make sure that I don't buy him something for his birthday that he doesn't already have. Like, you know, so she's really yeah, bad she's at make-believe. But, you know, so, like, I just thought it was interesting to notate that she almost <laughs> blew it right there. Uh, I also found it like, like noteworthy that the beggars on the street are those that the ministries deem not a witch or wizard in the blood status hearings with their wands being confiscated. So that was a full circle yeah. moment kind of to see those there. Um, wizards have forced a semblance of control over Gringotts. Remember they were saying like the goblins were replaced. The security goblins were replaced with wizards at the front. And the wizards had these things called probity probes to det- detect spells of concealment and hidden magical objects. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Harry, he uses an unforgivable curse, the Imperious Curse, on uh, Bogrod and Travers when he realizes Gringotts would have been alerted about Bellatrix's wand. So now it's right. like yeah. almost that sense of, you know, you have to do what it takes almost in a way where, you know, yeah. unforgivable curses should never be used, but there is some extenuating circumstances where you just kind of got to do what you got to do, you know, almost that Gellert Grindelwald saying for the greater good. Um <laughs> Going on from that, uh, I do I do think to, uh, to the credit of the book and something that I also agree with them in, I thought the thief's downfall was super cool, how the waterfall washes away all enchantments and magical concealment. Because it, it took away the Polyjuice Potion effects, it took away Ron's disguise, and lifted Bogrod from the Imperious Curse. So you see different things, like the Polyjuice yeah. Potion, a magical disguise with a wand, and an Imperious Curse, an Unforgivable Curse. They washed all of that away. So I thought that was really interesting and a, good, a really cool add by J.K. Rowling into that section. Yeah. Um, thought it was kind of messed up that the goblins used negative reinforcement to make the dragon expect pain when it heard the sounds of the clankers as a means of a way to get past it to the vaults. So to your point where you were saying how the vault was uh, protected to the nth degree, like, yeah, it was all the way down in the very bottom and the the... the Gringotts as it was, <laughs> covered by a dragon. Then you get into the vault. Then it's got the Geminio and the flagrant spells where it burns you and multiplies and it'll crush you under the weight of all the multiplying burning objects. Like It's like, yeah, man, this thing is pretty well concerned. On top of the fact that you need a goblin's hand that works at Gringotts to open it itself as well. Yeah. So there's like layers on layers of protection here. Um, so I also thought it was great. I mean, not great. This is one of the, the weird questions I had. Why the hell did Hermione use Levicorpus as a way to lift Harry in the air? Levit Corpus puts a person upside down by the ankle. That's what it does. Like, remember, that was one of the spells that Snape had created in the... Ha- like, well, we learned about it in the Half-Blood Prince. But Levit Corpus is the one that put people up by the ankles and kind of raised them in the air. Like, in my mind, wouldn't it have been easier and probably more productive to use when Guardium Leviosa? Like, you know, just, like, to kind of levitate yeah, him in the air yeah, so he's not halfway that. upside down trying to, like, finagle the sword through the hoop. Like, I just feel like when Guardian Leviosa probably would have been the smarter move there. 
Just a little thing that I took away. Yeah. And then... Isn't, like, Wingardium Leviosa, though? Like, I don't think it's meant for, like, objects of that weight. I don't know. It pulled the the troll's huge club out of his hand back, you know? (laughs) And that club probably... Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that club was not light. So, yeah, man. Um, Then the next one I have... Griphook betrayed Harry, Ron, Hermione. He took the sword, shouted thieves so that the security would go after the trio as opposed to himself. And then my final takeaway is they escape on the dragon. They got the Horcrux. Final takeaway. That was the main thing that happened, right? You got out, you got the yeah. dragon out of there. You got out of there. You got the Horcrux, but you don't have the sword. So that's kind of where yeah. I have my takeaways. Do you want me to kind of detail some bullet points before I let you take all of chapter 27? Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I only had four bullet points for the whole chapter. I mean, there's not much that goes on in the next one. But uh, I I don't know. I could still think that Griphook, though, I think he's a shyster. I could see him being in on that shit. Like, when he was casting the Imperious Curse, like, telling Harry to do it. Like, I could see him being in on that based on this chapter. Like, I can see what you're saying. Like, I can see, like, last minute him just being, like you know like f this i'm out like a, a almost like a peter Pettigrew, but i don't know i feel like he's smarter than that like i feel like he he worked at green gods for so long and it said they embraced him as one of their own he was in on that shit in my opinion How, where, where in the world the did it say did. they embraced him as his own? he was under the invisibility cloak on harry's shoulder and what world does it say they embraced him as one of his own <laughs> I thought I said something like that. Let me try. Yeah, to see no, man. Page. He was under Harry's. When he came back, clip. like, like they, okay, like he, a... like he ran through them, like because he... they, they didn't. Have, because that's the thing is they never saw Griphook except when he came out. So like they just accepted the fact that Griphook was there. It's like they're just like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> screw that. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to see here. Let's see. Uh. Yeah, I don't see anything on that, but <laughs> I could have thought he did. <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, sliding from Harry's shoulders the moment he could, he had sprinted for cover amongst the surrounding goblins, brandishing the sword and crying, thieves, thieves, help, thieves. He vanished into the midst of the advancing crowd, all of whom were holding daggers, and who accepted him without question. So, okay, right, that's where was... I was looking at it. Yeah, but... I was say, like, yeah, they ex- it's just because, like, in their mind, it's like, oh, they already took control of Bogrod. They probably took control of this goblin, too. So, like, they're just like, is this him, him coming back through? They probably thought the thief's downfall wiped off maybe the Imperious Curse on Griphook as well. And so they're just like, all right, screw it. Like, this is another goblin coming back to us. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't him. It was like, it was basically a ploy to, from Griphook to be like, don't focus on me. Focus on these people in the vault. That's what I think. So what do you think his actual plan was if it all did go according to plan? I still think he was like he you was think he would have just like the sword taken the sword yeah I think I think he still would have tried to take the sword like he would have found a way to like like grab the sword and jump off like whatever, however they were going to escape I don't think they, any of them planned to escape on dragon that was kind of an impromptu decision but if it, everything gone perfectly, I think Griphook was still planning to betray them. But like, I, like my thing is, I don't believe that all of Gringotts was isn't was in on it because why the hell would you let him get that far? Why not just like have well, yeah, Voldemort waiting there? You know what I mean? Like, you know, why not just have everyone just ambush Harry as soon as they get in there? If Griphook was in it from the, if Griphook had Gringotts in it from the beginning, like why not just have him but show up? But you would and agree then all of a sudden, that like, you're fucked. 
I would still say that's then a trap then because he clearly didn't plan on getting them out of there safely. To me, it's more of a betrayal than a trap. Like, he betrayed them. He's like, nah, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to trick you. Like, because it's not like he laid the trap where, like, okay, I'm going to get them in and then I'm going to get them out and they're going to be stuck. It was more along the lines of, like, all right, I got to save myself. I have what I need in the sword. I'm going to go ahead and basically say, I'm, I'm, these are the thieves. Like, you know, focus on them. Like, I grab, I'm grabbing the sword and I'm leaving. Like, I don't think, I think it was more like an impromptu on the spur of the moment decision. Like, he was going to betray them regardless. I just think in the fashion that he did was more because of how the events ended up unfolding with it really not going to plan, right? With all, like, the treasure bursting out of the door, multiplied, burning them, and all that. So, I think at the end of the day, he would have betrayed them regardless. I just think the way that it happened was more, not so much he would try to lay a trap for Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but more along the lines that he betrayed them once he realized that, like, there was no really solid way out, and he had a feeling that they were going to try to double-cross him for the sword. So he kind of, he tried to do the best he could with what was available to him, is my thoughts. That's what I think on it. I could be wrong, but that's my, my thought on it. I mean, I can see that. I just wonder if that would be possibly a plot hole then, because wouldn't they wonder, since Grip Hooks worked at Gringotts for so many years of his life, goblins wouldn't be like what the fuck are you doing down here like i well, guess he could say i was under the imperious curse right exactly kind of like the other one that they put underneath it like bogrod who actually was you know yeah it's kind of like it's kind of okay, like that i can see thing. it like i can buy it like it's i feel like it's a bit declimactic though like i it would have been badass for like an ocean's 11 like sound the alarm anyways because yeah sounds good take away the bullet points (laughs) that's good yeah no worries i I just want to add one more thing to that just to like kind of help clarify my point on it is think about what they did in terms of like grip hook telling them what was happening grip hook had no if he was planning like to trap them he had no reason to tell them about the thieves downfall you know he had no reason to like tell them all the right ways to get into the vault all he had to do is be like, oh, yeah, we could do this, this, and this. And they would have no choice but to trust him. And if he was planning to screw them over, you know, just to get them trapped in there and, like, escape himself, then he could have just said, this is how we get down to the vault. And, like, it'd be wrong. He could have lied to them and then had them trapped in a different way. Like, you know, not take the goblin with them, not even be able to get into the strangest vault in the first place. If he just wanted to trap Harry, Ron, and Hermione, he could have just been like, oh, these are what we need to do to get past this, this, and this. And then when they go to do that, he's like, haha, just kidding, you're fucked. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, my one question on that, though, and I was tempted to almost play the great debate guard because I don't think he expected Hermione to play the cushioning charm after the the cart smashed after they got past the thieves. Uh, I call it the thieves waterfall <laughs> the thieves <laughs> downfall. Like, I don't think he expected them to even get that far, though. I think well, it was then- just Hermione thinking on her feet. I don't think he expected three 17 year olds to be that smart well like i, mean, I think he thought day, it was unusual but your problem with that with that theory is that she also cushioned grip hook because if she didn't cushion grip hook he would have died <laughs> like oh yeah okay he's not a yeah. house elf you know what i mean like he's not gonna snap his fingers and like just magically land like she used a cushioning charm for all of them so if he didn't yeah. expect her to use a cushioning charm well he'd be dead too so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay that's true so that puts a flaw in his win. i agree with you i i think it makes sense i just thought it would have been badass if there was like some trap and some shit in there like it was basically the astronomy tower all over again but they made it out scotch 
clean. And the words in Dumb and Dumber. So what happens? What happens, Lloyd? They take the guy's money and get away scotch free up the road? <laughs> nah, man. They stop him halfway up the road, kicked him out of the car, and slit his throat. <laughs> it was a good one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I'll let you take away the bullet points. Sure. <laughs> Great shit. So, it's cool, because to your point, like, there, this is more of a bullet points chapter. I have a few bullet points here, but I do have you reading from page 548 through the rest. So, there's, like, about four pages yeah. there that I think are important. Yeah, not so too bad. What I'll go ahead and do is I'll take some bullet points here. What I have is page 544. I thought it was cool... That of all the fantasy fiction productions we've read or watched, we see people flying on dragons. But of all the things yeah. that have happened in Harry Potter so far, this is the first time we see characters flying on a dragon in Harry Potter. So even though we've seen yeah. Norbert, we've seen the Hungarian Horn Tale, the you know the uh, the Green Welsh, the Chinese Fireball, you know the Scottish whatever. Like of all the dragons we've seen throughout the books. There's never been a time where anyone's flown on the dragons. This is the first time you read in the series where characters have flown on dragons. Because think about it, right? Game of Thrones, bunch of people riding on dragons. <laughs> you know, think about, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm not ruining anything by saying, you know, in Aragon, you know, that whole thing's about yeah. dragon riders. You know, it's just, there's just all these things that, you know, they, they do fly on a cool stuff, right? And, and Harry Potter, they, Lord of the Rings, they got their rates flying on whatever the fuck those yep, things were. That is <laughs> like well. they weren't dragons, but you know. Yeah. And on top of that too, uh, The Witcher that had dragons. They, they and on, but here's the thing too, yeah. though. Like even with Harry Potter, we've seen them on brooms, we've seen them on thestrals, we've seen them on flying motorbikes, but this is the first time on a dragon. So they made it like super like uh, obscure and ambiguous. Like of all the things, you know, almost in a way <laughs> like. Like convoluted, that's the better word for it. All these convoluted means of flying through the air, brooms, thestrals, motorbikes, it finally occurred to them in the final novel to put them on a dragon. So I thought that was pretty cool as a bullet point there. Yeah. Um, do you think... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, like, J.K. Sorry, not to interrupt you. Do you think J.K. Rowling, like, saved... Like, she did that on purpose? Like, saved it for this book for that? Probably. That's something she was thinking about? Maybe, yeah. like, you know, I think everyone knows that one of the biggest, you know, cornerstones of a fantasy franchise fix in our dragons. I mean, shoot, even our Chasing Josh Factor Fantasy has our dragon up here in our logo, right? So, like, we all, Felix, everyone man. knows, yeah. yeah, like, yeah, everyone knows that fantasy fiction is synonymous with dragons involved somewhere, somehow <laughs> along the right. lines, like, almost in everything, right? So, I, I do believe that she, like, I mean, she added dragons throughout it, but. Maybe she did save it for the very last. She's like, you know what? I'm going to give them like a, a, a crazy way to escape a place you're not supposed to by doing something for the first time that they've seen in this novel, and that's flying on a dragon. So, yeah, yeah it's possible. Think about I think this it's probable more likely than not. Yeah. yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, just before you jump back on those bullet points, think about it, though. Like, going all the way back to Chamber of Secrets, like, they were pulled out by a phoenix. Then they flew on a hippogriff. Like, they've flown on pretty much everything. They've flown on Thestrals. They've flown on fucking everything but a dragon. Like, what the fuck? Yep. You would think that's the first thing that comes to mind. So, and I do got to say this real quick. This is really cool because we actually talked about this in the interesting facts uh, two weeks ago with the kind of the after we discussed the tale of the three brothers. So, um, one thing I brought up was 
So the first person that had the wand after Antioch uh, Pepperell's killer. So remember, he was killed, like had his like throat cut or whatever um, that had the yep. elder wand. So it was the person after that killed him was Americ the Evil. And it was actually written by J.K. Rowling after these books occurred. So my point is, I think she really liked this idea because she wrote this whole thing on him. And the biggest thing on him is he's a dragon rider. And that thing like came out after, I want to say like a year or two after the book happened. So I think she like took the whole publication of people finally loved the whole idea that it was like people riding on a dragon and she wanted to expand on it more, but she felt, I don't think she felt bad about it. I think she felt she did it the right way, but it's just a, such an iconic thing for fantasy fiction. And it's just so ironic that I would say, in my opinion, which the movies are another story, but still the movies have been very successful, but the books, probably the most known fantasy fiction franchise out there and we're just finally seeing them ride on dragons in the last book. So uh, just my thoughts on that. But back to you, Jay Nelly. I'll let you take those bullet points, brother. Sounds good, man. So the next one I have on page 545, just the second paragraph I read real quick is, you know, how long would it be before Voldemort knew that they had broken to the Strangers' vault? How soon would the goblins of Green Gods notify Bellatrix? How quickly would they realize what had been taken? And then when they discovered that the Golden Cup was missing, Voldemort would know at last... That they were hunting horcruxes so that's a huge segment right there that yeah. paragraph is loaded with like foreshadow full circle realization detail it's crazy like that was one two three four five five lines just those little five yeah. lines between a lot of with a lot of emphasis in that so i thought that was really interesting and cool but uh even like that almost kind of goes not to bring back this point that we've been kind of you know i don't want to beat a dead horse but it kind of supports my hypothesis as well that this wasn't a trap from the beginning because, you know, the goblins would have already uh, notified Bellatrix and them if they knew that they were going to break into the Bellatrix's vault. That's why it says here, how soon would the goblins of Gringotts notify Bellatrix? So I'll just you know, I'll, I'll say that one last thing and leave that where it is. But then the next thing on page 545, Harry starts to worry that maybe the dragon hadn't eaten in a long time and that it may try to eat them. That's, you know, that's a con. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows when the last time that thing is eating down there in the basement? Maybe it does want to eat Harry, Ron, and Hermione. So that's going to put them into a little bit of a pickle. What are they going to do here? And to answer that on page 546, they jump off the dragon and free fall into a lake, which was, you know, very risky. You know, who knows if, how deep or shallow that lake was, how hard they flew, if they're going to jump down from the flying dragon's back. But uh, all is well that ends well. They end up okay. Uh, so on page 547 here, before I have you take it from 548 to the end of the chapter, as I say, they have the Horcrux, they're off the dragon, but they have no sword to destroy it. And so with that, Sounds I'll turn good, it over brother. to you, 548, and I'll let you just kind of take it through the rest of this little chapter. Perfect. Hermione looked across the lake to the far bank, where the dragon was still drinking. What'll happen to it, do you think? She asked. Will it all be all right? You sound like Hagrid, said Ron. It's a dragon, Hermione. It can look after itself. It's us we need to worry about. What do you mean? Well, I don't know how to break it to you, said Ron, but I think they might have noticed we broke into Gringotts. <laughs> All three of them started to laugh, <laughs> and once started, it was difficult to stop. Harry's ribbed, ribs ached. 
He left. He felt lightheaded with hunger, but he lay back on the grass beneath the reddening, reddening sky and laughed until his throat was raw. What are we going to do, though? said Hermione, finally hiccuping herself back to seriousness. He'll know, won't he? You know, you know who will know we know about his horcruxes. Maybe they'll be too scared to tell him, said Ron, hopefully. Maybe they'll cover up. The sky, the smell of lake water, the sound of Ron's voice were extinguished. Pain cleaved Harry's head like a sword stroke. He was standing in a dimly lit room and a semicircle of wizards faced him, and on the floor at his feet knelt a small quaking figure. What did you say to me? His voice was high and cold, but fury and fear burned inside him, the one thing he had dreaded, but it could not be true. He could not see how. The goblin was trembling, unable to meet the red eyes high above his. Say it again, murmured Voldemort. Say it again. My, my lord, stammered the goblin, its black eyes wide with terror. My, my lord, we tried to stop him. Imposters, my lord, broke broke into into the Lestrange's vault. Imposters? What imposters? I thought Gringotts had ways of revealing imposters. Who were they? It was, it was the P -P Potter boy, boy, t two accomplices, and they took, he said, his voice rising, a terrible fear gripping him. Tell me, what did they take? A, a small golden c cup, my lord. The scream of rage of denial left him, as if it were a stranger's. He was crazed, frenzied. It could not be true. It was impossible. Nobody had ever known. How was it possible that the boy could have discovered his secret? The Elder Wand slashed through the air and green light erupted through the room. The kneeling goblin rolled over dead and watching wizards scattered before him, terrified. Bellatrix and Lucius Malfoy threw others behind them in their race for the door. And again and again his wand fell, and those who were left were slain, all of them, for bringing him this news, for hearing about the Golden Cup. Alone amongst the dead, he stormed up and down. They passed before him in vision, his treasures, his safeguards, his anchors to immortality. The diary was destroyed, and the cup was stolen. What if... What if the boy knew about the others? Could he know? Had he already acted? Had he traced more of them? Was Dumbledore at the root of this? Dumbledore, who had always suspected him? Dumbledore, dead on his orders? Dumbledore... Who's won his now, yet who reached out from the ignominy of death through the boy. The boy. But surely if the boy had destroyed any of his horcruxes, he, Lord Voldemort, would have known, would have felt it. He, the greatest wizard of them all. He, the most powerful. He, the killer of Dumbledore and of how many other worthless, nameless men. How could Lord Voldemort not have known if he himself, most important and precious, had been attacked, mutilated? true he had not felt it when the diary had been destroyed but he had thought that was because he had nobody to feel being less than ghost no surely the rest were safe the other horcruxes must be intact but he must know he must be sure he paced the room kicking aside the goblin's corpse as he passed in the pictures blurred and burned in his boiling brain the lake the shack and hogwarts a modicum of calm cooled his rage now how could the boy know that he had hidden the ring in the gaunt shack? No one had ever known him to be related to the gaunts. 
He had hidden the connection the killings had never been traced to him. The ring surely was safe. And how could the boy or anybody else know about the cave or penetrate its protection? The idea of the locket being stolen was absurd. As for the school, he alone knew where in Hogwarts he had stowed the Horcrux, because he alone had plumbed the deepest secrets of that place. And there was still Nagini, who must remain close now, no longer sent to do his bidding under his protection. But to be sure, to be utterly sure, he must return to each of his hiding places. He must redouble protection around each of his Horcruxes, a job like the quest for the Elder Wand that he must undertake alone. Which should he visit first? Which was in most danger? An old unease flickered inside him. Dumbledore had known his middle name. Dumbledore might have made the connection with the Gaunts. Their abandoned home was perhaps the least secure of his hiding place. It was there that he would go first. The lake surely impossible? Though, was there a slight possibility that Dumbledore might have known some of his past misdeeds through the orphanage? In Hogwarts. But he knew that his cor- crux was safe. It was, it would be impossible for Potter to enter Hogsmeade without detection, let alone the school. Nevertheless, it would be prudent to alert Snape to the fact that the boy might try to re-enter the castle. To tell Snape why the boy might return would be foolish, of course. It had been a grave mistake to trust Bellatrix and Malfoy. Didn't their stupidity and carelessness prove how unwise it was ever to trust? He would visit the Gaunt Shack first, and then and take Nagini with him. He would not be parted from the snake anymore. He strode from the room through the hall and out in the dark garden where the fountain played. He called the snake in Tongue, and it slithered out to join him like a long shadow. Harry's eyes flew open as he wrenched himself back to the present. He was lying on the bank of the lake in the setting sun, and Ron and Hermione were looking down at him, judging by their word looks and by continual pounding of his scar his sudden excursion into Voldemort's mind had not passed unnoticed he struggled up shivering vaguely surprised that he was still wet to his skin and saw the cup lying innocently in the grass before him in the lake deep blue shot with gold in the failing sun he knows his own voice sounded strange and low after Voldemort's high screams he knows and he's going to check where the others are and the last one He was already on his feet. Is it at Hogwarts? I knew it. I knew it. What? Ron was gaping at him. Hermione sat up, looking worried. But what did you see? How do you know? I saw him find out about the cup. I I was in his head. He's... Harry remembered the killings. He's seriously angry. And scarred, too. He can't understand how we knew. And now he's going to check the others are safe. The ring first. He thinks the Hogwarts one is safest because Snape's there, because it'll be so hard not to be seen getting in. I think he'll check that one last, but he could still be there within hours. Did you see where it, where in Hogwarts it is? asked Ron, now scrambling to his feet too. No, he was concentrating on warning Snape. He didn't think about exactly where it is. Wait, wait, cried Hermione. As Ron caught up the Horcrux and Harry pulled out the invisibility cloak again. We can't just go. We haven't got a plan. We need to... We need to get going, said Harry firmly. He had been hoping to sleep, looking forward to getting into the new tent, but that was impossible now. Can you imagine what he's going to do once he realizes the ring and the locket are gone? 
What if you move so Hogwarts Horcrux decides it isn't safe enough? But how are we going to get in? We'll go to Hogsmeade, said Harry, and try to work something out once we see what the protection around the school's like. Get under the cloak. Hermione, I want to stick together this time. But we don't really fit. It'll be dark. No one's going to notice our feet. The flapping of enormous wings echoed across the black water. The dragon had drunk its full, its fill, and risen into the air. They paused in their preparations to watch it climb higher and higher, now black against the rapidly darkening sky, until it vanished over a nearby mountain. Then Hermione walked forward and took her place between the other two. Harry pulled the cloak down as far as it would go, and together they turned on the spot into the crushing darkness. Yeah, man, someone's peeved. <laughs> Someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> yeah, man. So what are your takeaways from uh, Voldemort in the words of Hades? Almost lost my cool there. <laughs> yeah. What are well, your thoughts, brother? He did lose his cool because he just murdered everyone in the room that didn't get out fast enough. So, he <laughs> lost his cool. Also, not that it's a big yeah. deal, but when you said on page 552, you said he's seriously angry, angry and scarred. It's actually he's angry and scared, but that's not a big angry deal. Angry and scared. Uh, Sorry, I was reading too fast. But anyway, yeah. yeah I'm right. sure he's scarred somewhere from all his damn horcruxes <laughs> splitting up his soul. <laughs> yeah. Angry and scared. There you go. I only really have five big takeaways from this whole chapter. Kind of sums it up pretty easily. Voldemort finds out Harry took the Horcrux, and now he has to check on his other ones. Voldemort goes on a killing frenzy of all who were unfortunate enough to be too slow to exit the room. We learn the <laughs> other Horcrux is at Hogwarts. And Voldemort decides as a precaution to keep Nagini close and no longer send him on missions to do his bidding. Then they decide to act then and there and operate to Hogsmeade. Those are like the big five takeaways I have. Like that those are it. the big yeah. things that happen, right? Voldemort's a dick. That's what I got out of that. <laughs> Cause we're why are you killing these goblins? Cause I'm a dick. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, you man. Have? You hit the nail on the head. Uh, I mean that's exactly what I got from it. I think now, you know, he finally realizes it. I have a little bit of a problem with it, which I bring up in my plot holes, like why he has no idea, like having any sort of feeling that his like horcruxes are being destroyed, but it's not really a big deal, I guess, like they said in the book, but I'm okay with it. I'm cool. I'll let it slide. Let it slide. But yeah, man, uh, do you want to go ahead and uh, take away our last chapter for today? The last one that's going to end our episode, chapter 28, The Missing Mirror. For sure. I will absolutely do that. I will also just take three bullet points quickly before I go ahead from page 555 and go through the end of the chapter. But the first three bullet points I have, number one, uh, on page 554, their apparition into Hogsmeade tripped an alarm. Uh Continuing on page 554, a dozen Death Eaters burst out of the three broomsticks. And continuing on to page 555, a Death Eater tried to summon Harry's cloak, but it didn't work. And I found that a little bit interesting, how he like grabbed the, the folds of it, but it didn't even try to leave him. So uh, could that be part of the, uh, the hallow magic? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I guess <laughs> we'll learn later on, or maybe we won't learn at all. But going from there, I'll go ahead and take it from five, page 555 through the end of the chapter. It says, uh, 
Not under your wrapper then, Potter, yelled the Death Eater who had tried to charm. And then to his fellows, he said, spread out. He's here. Six of the Death Eaters ran towards them. Harry, Ron, and Hermione backed as quickly as possible down the nearest side street, and the Death Eaters missed them by inches. They waited in the darkness, listening to the footsteps running up and down, beams of light flying all along the street from the Death Eaters' searching wands. Let's just leave, Hermione whispered. Disapparate now. Great idea, said Ron, but before Harry could reply, a Death Eater shouted, We know you're here, Potter, and there's no getting away. We'll find you. They're ready for us, whispered Harry. They set up a spell to tell them we'd come, and I reckon they've done something to keep us here. To trap us. What about Dementors? Called another Death Eater. Let him have free reign. They'd find him quick enough. The Dark Lord wants Potter dead by no hand but his, and Dementors won't kill him. The Dark Lord wants Potter's life, not his soul. He'll be easier to kill if he's been kissed first. There were noises of agreement. Dread filled Harry. To repel Dementors, he would have to produce Patronus, which would give them away immediately. We're going to have to try and disapparate Harry, Hermione whispered. Even as she said it, he felt the unnatural cold begin to steal over the street. Light was sucked from the environment right up to the stars which vanished. In the pitch blackness, he felt Hermione take hold of his arm and together they turned on the spot and the air through which they needed to move seemed to have become solid. They could not disapparate. The Death Eaters had cast their charms well. The cold was biting deeper and deeper into Harry's flesh. He, Ron, and Hermione retreated down the side street, groping their way along the wall, trying not to make a sound. Then round the corner, gliding noiselessly, came the Dementors, ten or more of them, visible because they were of a denser dark than their surroundings, with their black cloaks and their scabbed and rotting hands. Could they sense fear in the vicinity? Harry was sure of it. They seemed to be coming more quickly now, taking those dragging, rattling breaths he detested, tasting despair on the air, closing in. He raises wand. He could not, would not suffer the Dementor's kiss, whatever happened afterwards. It was of Ron and Hermione that he thought of as he whispered, Expecto Patronum! And a silver stag burst from his wand and charged. The Dementor scattered, and there was a triumphant yell from somewhere out of sight. It's him! Down there! Down there at the end! I saw his Patronus! It was a stag! The Dementors had retreated. The stars were popping out again, and the footsteps of the Death Eaters were becoming louder. But before Harry, in his panic, could decide what to do, there was a grinding of bolts nearby, a door opened on the left-hand side of the narrow street, and a rough voice said, Potter, in here, quick. He obeyed without hesitation. The three of them hurtled through the open doorway. Upstairs, keep the cloak on, keep quiet, muttered the tall figure, passing them on his way into the street and slamming the door behind him. Harry had no idea where they were, but he now saw, by the stuttering light of a single candle, the grubby sawdust-strewn bar of the Hog's Head Inn. They ran behind the counter and through a second doorway which led to a rickety wooden staircase that they climbed as fast as they could. The stairs opened into a sitting room with a threadbare carpet and a small fireplace, above which hung a single large oil painting of a blonde girl who gazed out at the room with a kind of vacant sweetness. Shouts reached them from the street below. Still wearing the invisibility cloak, they crept forward towards the grimy window and looked down. Their savior, whom Harry now recognized as a hogshead barman, was the only person not wearing a hood. So what? He was bellowing into one of the hooded faces. So what? You send Dementors down my street? I'll send a Patronus back at him. I'm not having him here. I told you that. I'm not having it. That, was, that wasn't your Patronus, said a Death Eater. It was a stag. It was Potter's. Stag? Roared the barman. He pulled out a wand. Stag, you idiot. Expecto Patronum. And something huge and horned erupted from the wand. Head down, it charged towards a high street and out of sight. That's not what I saw, said the Death Eater. 
though with less certainty. Curfew has been broken. You heard the noise, one of his companions told the barman. Someone was out in the street against regulations. If I want to put my cat out, I will. And be damned to your curfew. You set off the Carter Walling charm? What if I did? Going to cart me off to Azkaban? Kill me for sticking my nose out of my own front door? Do it. Then, if you want to. But I hope for your sakes you haven't pressed your little dark mark and summoned him. He's not going to like being called here for me and my old cat, is he now? Don't you worry about us, said one of the Death Eaters. Worry about yourself breaking curfew. And where will you lot traffic potions and poisons when my pubs close down? What'll happen to your little sidelines then? Are you threatening? I keep my mouth shut, and it's why you come here, isn't it? I still say I saw a stag Patronus, shouted the first Death Eater. Stag, roared the barman. It's a goat, idiot. All right, we, we made a mistake, said the second Death Eater. Break curfew again, and we won't be so lenient. The Death Eater strode back towards the high street. Hermione moaned with relief, wove out from under the cloak, and sat down on a wobble-legged chair. Harry drew the curtains tight shut, pulled the cloak off himself and Ron, and they could hear the barman down below, rebolting the door of the bar, then climbing up the stairs. Harry's attention was caught by something on the mantelpiece, a small rectangular mirror propped on top of it, right beneath the portrait of the girl. The barman entered the room. You bloody fools, he said gruffly, looking from one to the other of them. What were you thinking coming here? Thank you, said Harry. We can't thank you enough. You saved our lives. The barman grunted. Harry approached him, looking up into the face, trying to see past a long, stringy, wire-gray hair and beard. He wore spectacles. Behind the dirty lens, the eyes were a piercing, brilliant blue. It's your eye I've been seeing in the mirror. There was a silence in the room. Harry and the barman looked at each other. You sent Dobby. The barman nodded and looked around for the elf. Thought he'd be with you. Where have you left him? He's dead, said Harry. Bellatrix Lestrange killed him. The barman's face was impassive. After a few moments, he said, I'm sorry to hear it. I like that elf. He turned away, lighting lamps with prods of his wand, not looking at any of them. You're Aberforth, said Harry to the man's back. He neither confirmed nor denied it, but bent to light the fire. How did you get this? Harry asked, walking across to Sirius's mirror, the twin of the one he had broken nearly two years before. Bought it from Dung about a year ago. Albus told me what it was. Been trying to keep an eye out for you. Ron gasped. The silver joe, the silver doe, he said excitedly. Was that you too? What are you talking about, said Aberforth. Someone sent a doe Patronus to us. Brains like that? You could be a death eater, son. Haven't I just proved my Patronus is a goat? Oh, said Ron. Yeah, well, I'm hungry. He added defensively as his stomach gave an enormous <laughs> rumble. <laughs> I got food, said Aberforth, and he sloped out of the room, reappearing moments later with a large loaf of bread, some cheese, and a pewter mug of mead, which he set upon a small table in front of the fire. Ravenous, they ate and drank, and for a while there was silence, but for the cackle of the fire, the clink of the goblets, and the sound of chewing. Right then, said Aberforth, when they had eaten their fill, and Harry and Ron had slapped had sat slumped dozily in their chairs. We need to think of the best way to get you out of here. Can't be done by night. You heard what happens if anyone moves outdoor during darkness. Cater walling charms set off. They'll be on to you like bow chuckles on doxy eggs. I don't reckon I'll be able to pass off a stag as a goat a second time. Wait for daybreak when the curfew lifts. Put on your cloak 
and set out on foot. Get right out of Hogsmeade, up into the mountains, and you'll be able to disapparate there. You might see Hagrid. He's been hiding in a cave up there with Grop ever since they tried to arrest him. We're not leaving, said Harry. We need to get into Hogwarts. Don't be stupid, boy, said Aberforth. We've got to. What you've got to do, said Aberforth, leaning forward, is to get as far from here as you can. You don't understand. There isn't much time. We've got to get into the castle. Dumbledore... I mean, your brother wanted us. The firelight made the grimy lenses of Aberforth's glasses momentarily opaque, a bright, flat white, and Harry remembered the blind eyes of the giant spire Aragog. My brother Albus wanted a lot of things, said Aberforth, and people had a habit of getting hurt while he was carrying out his grand plans. You get away from the school, Potter, and out of the country if you can. Forget my brother and his clever schemes. He's gone where none of this can hurt him. And you don't owe him anything. You don't understand, said Harry again. Oh, don't I? said Aberforth. You don't think I understood my own brother. Think you knew Albus better than I did. I didn't mean that, said Harry, whose brain felt sluggish when exhaustion, with, whose brain felt sluggish with exhaustion and from the surfeit of food and wine. It's that he, he left me a job. Did he now? said Aberforth. Nice job, I hope. Pleasant. Easy. Sort of thing you expect from an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. Rather, Ron gave a rather grim laugh. Hermione was looking strained. It's, uh, it's not easy, no, said Harry, but I've got to. Got to. Why got to? He's dead, isn't he? said Aberforth, roughly. Let it go, boy, before you follow him. Save yourself. I can't. Why not? I... Harry felt overwhelmed. He could not explain. So he took to the offensive instead. But you're fighting too. You're in the Order of the Phoenix. I was, said Aberforth. The Order of the Phoenix is finished. You know who's won. It's over. And anyone who's pretending different's kidding themselves. It'll never be safe for you here, Potter. He wants you too badly. Go abroad. Go into hiding. Save yourself. Best take these two with you, he jerked a thumb at Ron and Hermione. They'll be in danger as long as they live now. Everyone knows they've been working with you. I can't leave, said Harry. I've got a job. Give it to someone else. I can't. It's got to be me. Dumbledore explained it all. Oh, did he now? And did he tell you everything? Was he honest with you? Harry wanted with all of his heart to say yes, but somehow the simple word would not rise to his lips. Aberforth seemed to know what he was thinking. I knew my brother, Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee. Secret and lies, that's how he grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. The old man's eyes traveled to the painting of the girl over the mantelpiece. It was, now Harry looked around properly, the only picture in the room. There was no photograph of Albus Dumbledore, nor of anyone else. Mr. Dumbledore, said Hermione rather timidly, is that your sister Ariana? Yes, said Aberford tersely. Been reading Rita Skeeter, have you, missy? Even by the rosy light of the fire, it was clear that Hermione had turned red. Alphias Doge mentioned her to us, said Harry, trying to spare Hermione. That old Burke, muttered Aberforth, taking another swig of the mead. Thought the sun shone out of my brother's every orifice, he did. Well, so did plenty of people. You three included it, by the looks of it. Harry kept quiet. He did not want to express the doubts and uncertainties about Dumbledore that had riddled him for months now. He had made his choice while he dug Dobby's grave. He had decided to continue along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore. 
to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know, but simply to trust. He had no desire to doubt again. He did not want to hear anything that would deflect him from his purpose. He met Aberforth's gaze, which was so strikingly like his brother's. The bright blue eyes gave the same impression that they were X-raying the object of their scrutiny. And Harry thought that Aberforth knew what he was thinking and despised him for it. Professor Dumbledore cared about Harry very much, said Hermione in a low voice. Did he now? said Aberforth. Funny thing, how many of the people my brother cared for about very much end up in a worse state than if he'd left them well alone. What do you mean? asked Hermione breathlessly. Never you mind, said Aberforth. But that's a really serious thing to say. Are you talking about your sister? Aberforth glared at her. His lips moved as if he were chewing words that he was holding back. And then he burst into speech. When my sister was six years old, she was attacked, set upon by three muggle boys. They'd seen her doing magic, spying through the garden hedge. She was a kid. She couldn't control it. No witch or wizard can at that age. What they saw scared them. They forced her way through the hedge, and when she couldn't show them the trick, they got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak from doing it. Hermione's eyes were huge in the firelight. Ron looked slightly sick. Aberforth stood up, tall as Albus, and suddenly terrible in his anger and the intensity of his pain. It destroyed her what they did. She was never right again. She wouldn't use magic, but she couldn't get rid of it. It turned inward and drove her mad. It exploded out of her when she couldn't control it, and at times she was strange and dangerous. But mostly, she was sweet and scared and harmless. And my father went after the bastards that did it, stabbed her forth, and attacked them. And they locked him in Azkaban for it. He never said why he'd done it, because of the ministry had... Because if the ministry had known what Arion had become, she'd have been locked up in St. Mungo's for good. They'd have seen her as a serious threat to the international statute of secrecy, unbalanced like she was, with magic exploding out of her at a moment's notice when she couldn't keep it any longer. We had to keep her safe and quiet. We moved house, put it about she was ill. My mother looked after her and tried to keep her calm and happy. I was her favorite, he said. And as he said it, a grubby schoolboy seemed to look out through Alberforce's wrinkles and tangled beard. Not Albus. He was always up in his bedroom when he was home, reading his books and counting his prizes, keeping up with his correspondence with the most notable magical names of the day. Aberforce sneered. He didn't want to be bothered with her. She liked me best. I could get her to eat when she wouldn't do it for my mother. I could get her to calm down when she was in one of her rages. And when she was quiet... She used to help me feed the goats. Then, when she was 14, see, I wasn't there, Steverforth. If I'd been there, I could have calmed her down. She had one of her rages, and my mom, she wasn't as young as she used to be. And it was an accident. Ariana couldn't control it, but my mother was killed. Harry felt a horrible mixture of pity and repulsion. He did not want to hear anymore, but Aberforth kept talking and Harry wondered how long it had been since he had spoken about this, whether, in fact, if he had ever spoken about it at all. So that put paid to Albus's trip around the world with little Doge. The pair of them came home from my mother's funeral, then Doge went off on his own, and Albus settled down as head of the family. Ha! Aberforth spat into the fire. I'd have looked after her. I told him so. I didn't care about school. I'd have stayed home and done it. He told me I had to finish my education, and that he'd take over for my mother. 
Bit of a come down for Mr. Brilliant. There's no prizes in looking after your half-mad sister, stopping her from blowing up the house every other day. But he did all right for a few weeks. Till he came. And now a positively dangerous look crept over Aberforth's face. Grindelwald. And at last, my brother had an equal to talk to. Someone just as bright and talented as he was. And looking after Ariana took a back seat then, while they were hatching all their plans for a new wizarding order, and looking for hallows, and whatever else it was that they were so interested in. Grand plans for the benefit of all wizard kind. And if one young girl got neglected, what did that matter when Albus was working for the greater good? But after a few weeks of it, I'd had enough. It was nearly time for me to go back to Hogwarts, so I told him, both of them, face to face, like I am to you now. And Aberforth looked down at Harry, and it took little imagination to see him as a teenager, wiry and angry, confronting his elder brother. I told him, you'd better give it up now. You can't move her. She's in no fit state. You can't take her with you. So wherever it is you're planning to go when you're making your clever speeches, trying to whip up yourself a following, he didn't like that forth, and his eyes were briefly white and blind again. I'm sorry. His eyes were briefly occluded by the firelight on the lenses of his glasses. They shone white and blind again. Grindelwald didn't like that at all. He got angry. He told me what a stupid little boy I was trying to stand in the way of him and my brilliant brother. Didn't I understand? My poor sister wouldn't have to be hidden once they changed the world and led the wizardings out of, uh, let the wizards out of hiding and taught the muggles their place. And there was an argument. And I pulled out my wand. And he pulled out his. And I had the Cruciatus curse used on me by my brother's best friend. And Albus was trying to stop him. And then all three of us were dueling. And the flashing lights and the bang set her off. She couldn't stand it. The color was draining from Aberforth's face as though he had suffered a mortal wound. I think she wanted to help, but she didn't really know what she was doing. I don't know which one of us did it. Could have been any of us. And she was dead. His voice broke on the last word as he dropped down into the nearest chair. Hermione's face was wet with tears. Ron was almost as pale as Aberforth. Harry felt nothing but revulsion. He wished he had not heard it. Wished he could wash his mind clean of it. I'm so... I'm so sorry, whispered Hermione. Gone, croaked Aberforth on forever. He wiped his nose on his cuff and cleared his throat. Of course Grindelwald scampered. He had a bit of a track record already back in his own country and he didn't want Ariana set to his account too. And Albus was free, wasn't he? Free of the burden of his sister. Free to become the greatest wizard of the... He was never free, said Harry. I beg your pardon, said Aberforth. Never, said Harry. The night that your brother died... He drank a potion that drove him out of his mind. He started screaming, pleading with someone who wasn't there. Don't hurt them, please. Hurt me instead. Ron and Hermione were staring at Harry. He had never gone into detail about what had happened on the island at the lake. The events that had taken place after he and Dumbledore had returned to Hogwarts had eclipsed it so thoroughly. He thought he was back there with you and Grindelwald. I know he did, said Harry, remembering Dumbledore whimpering, pleading. He thought he was watching Grindelwald hurting you and Ariana. It was torture to him. If you would have seen him then, you wouldn't say that he was free. Aberforth seemed lost in contemplation of his own knotted and veined hands. After a long pause, he said, How can you be sure, Potter, that my brother wasn't more interested in the greater good than in you? 
How can you be sure that you aren't dispensable just like my little sister? The shot of ice seemed to pierce Harry's heart. I don't believe it. Dumbledore loved Harry, said Hermione. Why didn't he tell him to hide then, shot back Everforth. Why didn't he say to him, take care of yourself? Here's how to survive. Because, said Harry before Hermione could answer, sometimes you've got to think about more than your own safety. Sometimes you've got to think about the greater good. This is war. You're 17, boy. I'm of age, and I'm going to keep fighting even if you've given up. Who says I've given up? The Order of the Phoenix is finished, Harry repeated. You know who's won. It's over, and anyone who's pretending different is kidding themselves. I don't say I like it, but it's the truth. No, it isn't, said Harry. Your brother knew how to finish you-know-who, and he passed the knowledge on to me. And I'm going to keep going until I succeed or die. Don't think I don't know how this might end. I've known it for years. He waited for Aberforth to jeer or to argue, but he did not. He merely scowled. We need to get into Hogwarts, Harry said it again. If you can't help us, we'll wait to delve, we, will, we will wait till daybreak, leave you in peace, and try to find a way in ourselves. If you can help us, well now would be a great time to mention it. Aberforth remained fixed in his chair, gazing at Harry with the eyes that were so extraordinary like his brother's. At last, he cleared his throat, got to his feet, walked around the little table, and approached the portrait of Ariana. You know what to do, he said. She smiled, turned, and walked away, not as people in portraits usually did out of the sides of their frames, but along what seemed to be a long tunnel painted behind her. They watched her slight figure retreating until... Finally, she was swallowed by the darkness. Uh, what? Began Ron. There's only one way in now, said Everforth. You must know they've got all the old secret passageway covered at both ends. Dementors all around the boundary walls. Regular patrols inside the school, from what my sources tell me. The place has never been so heavily guarded. How you expect to do anything once you get inside, with Snape in charge, and the Caros as his deputies, well, that's your lookout, isn't it? You say you're prepared to die. But what, said Hermione, frowning at Ariana's picture. A tiny white dot had reappeared at the end of the painted tunnel, and now Ariana's walking back towards them, growing bigger and bigger as she came. But there was somebody else with her now, someone taller than she was, who was limping along, looking excited. His hair was longer than Harry had ever seen it. He appeared to have suffered several gashes to his face, and his clothes were ripped and torn, Larger and larger, the two figures grew until only their head and shoulders filled the portrait. Then, the whole thing swung forward on the wall like a little door, and the entrance to a real tunnel was revealed. And out of it, his hair overgrown, his face cut, his robes ripped, clambered the real Neville Longbottom, who gave a roar of delight, leapt down from the mantelpiece, and yelled, I knew you'd come! I knew it, Harry! that is the end of chapter 28 which is coincidentally is where we will leave the contents of the novel today and since i just took us through that chapter chase how about you go ahead and get us started with some of your takeaways from that final chapter that we're doing for tonight yeah man uh a lot of big information here so now of course you're learning more about aberforth so the first big bullet point just picking up from where you did your bullet points um, so, of course, I thought it was really cool. Aberforth's Patronus is a goat, and that's actually part of my interesting facts today. I'll get into later, but uh, I thought that was really cool. And at first, of course, they thought it was a stag, 
and uh and it was a goat <laughs> the whole time and you don't hear about goat patronuses very much um as far as uh, this was a big one is you're finally hearing about, of course, uh, Madungus is how he got the mirror and the other person on the other end of that mirror was Aberforth the whole time that Harry thought it was Dumbledore. Also, uh, it was actually Aberforth that sent Dobby, which is really full circle moment uh, for that chapter I did back in Malfoy Manor. And that's how Dobby got there and rescued them. Um, and it is sad. Once again, a kind of a full circle moment was Harry informed him that Bellatrix Lestrange killed him. And uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, I'm sorry to hear it. I like that elf. So you can kind of see, you know, Aberforth was pretty close to him, too. Um, as far as from that point, uh, of course, we do find out that, of course, because, you know, the group is asking him if he sent the silver dough and you find out he didn't send the silver dough. So we're still trying to find out who sent that, uh, and we'll get to that at some get to that next week actually. Yeah, I think or the week after next week probably. I think. Um, of course, Ron shoots himself in a foot to, in the foot again. Like what the fuck? <laughs> like once again, Ron proves what an idiot he is. He asked if like he sent the silver dough, and he goes, "Didn't I just show you like my Patronus is a goat? Didn't I just tell you that? <laughs> like with brains like that, you could be a Death Eater." Like once again, Ron proves like he has no common sense whatsoever. That was on page five sixty, um, and then of course they're talking to Aberforth, and this is where <laughs> we get into really the meat of the chapter. Is they see the portrait of Ariana overhanging there. And you really see here how much Aberforth and Dumbledore were very conflicting, I'll say, throughout their entire life. And, you know, Ariana, she was attacked by those muggles and her father um, went and uh, pursued them. And then because of that was put into Azkaban, whereas then it was Albus's job to watch over her um, after she could not control her magic and wound up killing her own mother but you can see how you know albus aberforth kind of gives gives across the idea that he didn't really spend as much time with her so i think he kind of resented albus a little bit for that and then he speaks of you know this is when grindelwald uh came into play and you know albus never really had an equal of his own and finally when grindelwald came into play you know, Aberforth, uh, when he really stood up to Grindelwald, Grindelwald started torturing um, Aberforth, and then Dumbledore stepped in, and they got in that three-way duel, and because of that, Ariana was hit by one of them in the duel and was killed over it. Um, so now you're having this big full-circle moment from the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore where we've been hearing all these rumors, and we're starting to hear a little bit of the truth come out. Um, and then I thought it was uh, going back just a couple of pages before that. That was on 566, but 562, just like you were saying, you know, Aberforth mentions he was a natural at lies and secrets. So you're still kind of even wondering, wow, like maybe did Dumbledore have us fooled the whole time? But then you have that full circle moment coming back to the chapter I took us on a whole book ago in the cave. Remember when he was drinking the potion and when he was being tortured and he was even like, kill me. And he was, uh, you're finally hearing that moment of what it was about. And it was because, you know, he was basically saying, um, you know, 
torture me instead pretty much um but because he was talking about uh, aberforth and ariana being tortured by grindelwald and he said don't hurt them please hurt me instead is what he was saying that's on page 567 at the bottom um and then of course you know this moment when harry stands up to aberforth and then actually tells him that and then this is when you know he says this is war and he's still standing up for what's right and feels like aberforth is really just giving in at this moment and then aberforth of course says he's not really giving up and then comes to that realization after harry tells him that you know dumbledore uh definitely um that did impact him a lot and that's when aberforth decides to tell ariana in the portrait you know what to do and she goes down that tunnel and comes back and then we have another full circle moment because we haven't seen him in forever we talked about him on the differences i guess he was riding on the hogwarts express the whole time we never knew about it <laughs> but neville longbottom comes out of nowhere which uh he's gonna play a big role next week and um you know we really haven't seen him do shit since he got his ass kicked in my favorite book <laughs> in order of the phoenix so i'm um, looking forward to that and uh you telling us about that next week because he he really steps up his game here but man he definitely needs a haircut and uh those were the takeaways i had what about you brother a couple of things number one i think it's hilarious i don't even know if you noticed it this is more about you more than it is about the concepts of the book but every time you try to find your place of what you're going to talk about that's on your book you say the words of course like every time like of course this and then of course and then of course man of course and then of course it's like it's like your it's like your filler word before you find where you want to be in your notes it's funny but uh, uh from there like i also want to just reiterate that the um the stag dementor thing the dement the the death eaters like were right initially they thought it was the stag and then when Aberforth like show them the goat they're like dude it was a goat you right. idiot and then the yeah. you know the death ears like weren't sure they're like i don't know like didn't really look like what i saw but he kind of convinced them of yeah. it in a way you know that's that's kind of an issue of itself i do think that he really would have got away with that i don't know but um going <laughs> on going on from there hey yo call on a second let me go ahead and give my boy neville like a couple bit of bit of credit he's the only one <laughs> to show up with luna when the, the when they called him on the da coins and uh, what's it called? Half Blood Prince. When they, you know, they said they took the lucky potion, and they left. Harry, Harry and Dumbledore left to the lake, and they helped battle the Death Eaters. Don't don't tell my boy Neville short. All right, he tried. Whatever. He tried to help I them out him... too. Out of all the people there, it was like Neville, Luna, Ginny, Hermione, Ron, Lupin, Tonks, like. You know, Bill Weasley. Okay. Like, yeah. There's only a few people that helped defend the castle. Neville was one of them, so you better show Neville some respect. But you know what sticks <laughs> out in my mind is when he smashed that fucking orb. Well, that was, <laughs> when he that fast, was back in smashed order. the fucking prophecy. <laughs> I remember him doing that and fucking that up. <laughs> well, yeah, that was back in order. But you gotta give my man. I remember Bellatrix kicking his ass. I do remember that. How's mom and dad? That wasn't in the books, but <laughs> we actually technically it was in the books. Yeah, be respectful of that. But yeah, him. okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We but, gotta give him his credit. Granted, he can never produce a full corporeal Patronus in the DA, but I'm gonna give it to him. I'm gonna give him some props, man. I mean, you know, he's still alive. That's good. I mean, some people aren't. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll, now I'll <laughs> jump into the uh, takeaways of what I actually had from the chapter because some of them are similar to yours. I have some other ones I added to it that I thought were important takeaways. Um, now, first thing, the Death Eaters had a plan to have the Dementors suck out Harry's soul because Voldemort only needs Harry's mm-hmm. life. It's actually a pretty damn solid plan. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, all he needs to do is kill Harry. Like, it's a lot easier to kill someone whose soul is gone and just kind of, they're like a zombie in a way and they can't do anything to defend themselves. Like, it's not a terrible plan. Obviously, you know, Aberforth foils that plan, but it's still worth noting. I thought that was pretty impressive for, like, silly henchmen to come up with that brilliant idea. Um, after that, the Death Eaters casted a spell to make it impossible to disapparate so that when they got there, there that the alarm went off, there was no way to get out because they had him like kind of trapped. They'd even tried. They said Hermione grabbed him and sp- tried to spin on a spot, but like it was like solid. They couldn't go through, you know, that time and space that they usually are able to. Um, from there, Aberforth comes to their rescue, gets them inside, and tells the Death Eater that Patronus was his, and even casts one himself, which is a goat, which I guess is a passable, like replica of a stag. If you're looking at it quickly, and you're not really processing what you're seeing. Like obviously, they're very different. Stags are bigger, the antlers are way larger, you know, goats are smaller with little tiny horns that go one way. So, you know, could they really pull that off as, you know, this is how we're going to have Aberforth talk them out of it? I don't know. Maybe the Death Eaters are dumb, I guess. But anyways, continue on from there. Uh, Full circle moment. We learn it's been Aberforth that Harry's been seeing in the shard of Sirius's mirror, not Albus. It's Aberforth who sent Dobby. Uh... And then to your point, you already mentioned this, but I have to reiterate it because it's just Ron being fucking Ron. Ron, again, shows how <laughs> dumb he is asking Aberforth if he sent the Doe Patronus when Aberforth literally just showed them that it was a goat. So just want to make sure that we don't miss an opportunity to give Ron a hard time. Uh, <laughs> then after that, we uh, we learn Hagrid's been hiding up in the mountains with Grop outside of Hogsmeade. So that's where Hagrid's been since they tried to arrest him. Pretty important. Uh, yeah. Aberforth sounds defeated. He tries to convince Harry to give up Dumbledore's mission. Says the order's finished and that Voldemort won. So, like you said, it seems like he has given up a little bit on the insight. We then learn about the truth about what happened to Ariana Dumbledore. So, everything's kind of come full circle. And you say it's come full circle from last book. Shit, I say it's come full circle from Sorcerer's Stone when Harry was looking at the mirror of Erised and Dumbledore was sitting behind him. And Harry's like, well, what do you see in there, Professor? And he said, I see myself getting a pair of socks. Well... I yeah, feel like that's good. I really feel like maybe he good saw call. his whole family hold together again, kind of just like Harry saw. So yeah, that's my opinion. Uh, from there, I agree with that. We learned that, Gr- that. Grindelwald, yeah. yeah, for sure. And then we learned that Grindelwald used the Cruciatus curse on Aberforth, which is pretty fucked up. Like your brother's best friend tortures your younger brother. Like what? <laughs> like that's crazy, man. Uh, I also yeah. wanted to just guys put yourself in this state. Imagine a duel. Like, at 17 years old, like, 17-year-old Dumbledore, 17-year-old Grindelwald, and, what, 15-year-old Aberforth, that must have been a duel for the fucking ages inside a living room, man. Like, that must have been a badass duel. I just could only imagine how powerful all of them were, especially Albus and Grindelwald. I mean, obviously, Aberforth's no slouch. I wouldn't say he's on the same level as Albus and Grindelwald, but still, a three-way duel of that magnitude with those cowboy wizards must have been a pretty crazy thing to witness and i'm not surprised at all that one of those curses hit and killed ariana they're powerful yeah. wizards man um from there thought this was pretty full circle uh yeah talking about albus dumbledore's words after drinking the drink of despair now we know what he was reliving in his head so there's a full circle from there too like you already mentioned uh harry basically tells our to help them or don't but he's seeing the mission through 
And the last takeaway I have, the secret entrance to Hogwarts behind Ariazana's painting opens up. And Negative on bottom goes to greet them. And uh, yeah, that kind of closes us out with the impact moments that we have through the chapters that we tackled today, being chapter 25 through chapter 28. So what do you say we kind of jump into our next portion, which is the uh, plot holes and discrepancies side? Yeah, man, I was just going to say, like, just like you said, that would be badass to see on screen. Yeah. Like, imagine it, it, that that's the duel everyone wants to fucking see <laughs> is Aberforth, Albus and Grindelwald with Ariana in the middle. And I still got to kind of believe I don't think Ar Ariana, they're basically talking about her as a fucking obscure. Like she can't control her magic. I would imagine she would have something to do in that fucking battle. Like, a, pull a fucking Wanda vision and fucking explode the shit like Civil War. <laughs> like, we gotta be held in check here. And <laughs> they're just going fucking back and forth. That would be absolutely epic. And then she winds up getting hit. People have talked about this so many fucking times. This is the shit they should have done for, like, the crimes against Grindelwald and all that. Like, you know, whatever, fine, it's all right. But, like, that's what you should have fucking saw. Like, if you saw, in their prime, Albus, Aberforth, Ariana as a little girl and, like, can't control her magic, that would be absolutely amazing. That that would be absolutely phenomenal. Um, I don't know why they chose to go other routes. <laughs> we've talked about other routes where we've heard rumors about what they plan to do definitely don't fucking agree with that <laughs> uh yeah we won't tell you what it is but long story short what i think they're planning to do on hbo max sucks and i'll leave it on that y'all can look it up for yourself it's absolutely disappointing if that's <laughs> what it is but you have all these different ideas that would have been great you could have done you know the entire origin story almost like yoda fucking origins of albus dumbledore grindelwald Aberforth and Ariana and then you could have done even a prequel of the Marauders and you could have done a prequel with like Snape in the Marauders and how he was growing up there's so many different things you could do that would be absolutely amazing to see on screen and you don't even have to even reference what went on with the original franchise to keep the original franchise intact so you feel like you don't mess up the classics like that's kind of almost like it's a little bit different than Star Wars because Star Wars still reference them and that sort of thing. But, and you can even do that. It's not like the actors are fucking dead, man. It's not like they're fucking dead. Like, what the hell? You got the fucking Mandalorian putting Luke Skywalker in there and you can't do shit. And then you can't do any of the fucking prequel. I wish I, me and you could have, you and I could have been directors, Jane Ellie, because there's so many other awesome opportunities you have that you know would make money because the harry potter franchise and fans are so fucking dedicated it's absolutely obscene some of the ideas they come up with when you have material sitting right in front of your face i would say and that's all i'll say with that yes i i think being a writer for a major film franchise or even a tv series franchise would be amazing for us just because as we do these things in such high detail you know we see what happens when other you know will be when we go into the differences between the films and a novel for harry potter there's just a lot of the areas of opportunity and large moments missed and things of that nature just because you know unfortunately people think that everyone would just wants to see 
like amazing motion pictures and crazy things happen on screen and in terms of the visual aspect of it not so much you know for a lot of readers especially diehard fans we want to make sure you got the detail yeah. and the nuances correct and that's where i think a lot of uh writers fail in their in their portrayal of certain uh, the adaptations of novels to film so no i'm that's yeah. what i that's my final take on that but uh, yeah no it'd be nice to to maybe get an opportunity one day to write our own um <laughs> write our own script that'd be kind of cool yeah yeah man what about plot holes i know you're the plot hole guy speaking of writing <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean you, dude. Uh, take it away <laughs> what's funny is like yeah normally i am the plot hole guy i just didn't really have anything concrete you know the, the two things that i can say are more of my opinion more than i can point to them being actual factual plot holes right the number one the first thing is like i find it hard to believe that the goblins and gringotts once they saw hermione there as bellatrix you remember that like one goblin walked up to the other older goblins like hey remember we have specific instructions regarding that vault i find it very hard to believe that the older goblin could just be like i know it but they're old clients i'm gonna take them there anyways like no some alarm would have been tripped Voldemort should have been on his fucking way like for me like you know that that's just more of a hard to believe sort of thing like it's not realistic to me but i guess it's not technically a plot hole it works it just isn't believable to me personally that's my first discrepancy the one that i'm just like i have a hard time swallowing it's like okay like man if this was real life i really don't believe that it would go down like that and very similarly to that i think the same thing about the patronus that harry conjured it being a stag and then the death eaters come up to aberforth and aberforth's like no it was mine here it was and it was a go and then being like ah i guess it could have been like, like, I don't know. You don't yeah. take any chances, especially knowing how badly Voldemort wanted Harry. If there was even a chance that Harry was in the area, you were, you were going to do a lot more than just take a old barman's word for it that it was his Patronus that he casted. You know what I mean? Especially, you know, yeah. from what we, we saw in the vision that Harry had of Voldemort, killing all those people now worried because Voldemort realizes Harry knows about the Horcruxes and Voldemort, even in his own head, is like, Harry will never find the one at, at um, Hogwarts. Plus, if he even tries, you know, it's it's impossible for him to get inside the castle. So, the fact right. that he already, in a, in a way, assumes he'll try to get to the castle, then something very awkward happens. Like, if you're an everyday Death Eater guarding Hogsmeade, and someone, at, you know, you get that Cotterwalling charm set off, and it's a possibility that you know Harry Potter might be there. Like you're not taking chances, especially when you see how angry Voldemort's been throughout this whole book, just killing people left and right because they've been disappointing him, torturing the ones even closest to him, like Bellatrix and the Malfoys. Like, you know, it's just hard for me to swallow that. You know, the Death Eaters say, "I saw a stag Patronus. Let's go get him, boys." And then when they show up, like to near the door, Aberforth's like, "Nah, <laughs> it was me. Here it is," and shows a goat. And the guy's <laughs> yeah. like, "Yeah." I don't know. I guess so. All right. Well, have a good night. Don't break curfew again. And that's it. Like, no, man. I don't. I can't. I can't stomach that and thinking that's believable and that is an actual event that would transpire. If I'm given in my mindset, if I'm trying to put this into reality, it just isn't realistic to me. I don't know. Those are my two. Like I said, they're not plot holes. They're just things that I think could have been done better. If that makes sense. Uh, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Yeah, I got three. Um... And just kind of uh, piggybacking on what you were saying. So I, I agree with that fully because 
especially the way you explained it. I think you proved your point <laughs> very well. Like Voldemort, like the undesirable number one is fucking Harry Potter. Like if you see something that looks like Harry Potter and his fucking two known accomplices right now that just broke out of fucking Green Gods and have been literally wanted <laughs> for like all fucking summer since being in the ministry. Like, yeah, no, like, they would at least, like, want to search the house or something, I would think. Like, yes. at least search the fucking house, right? Yes. Or demand to search. It's not even a house, it's a fucking bar. He lives at the bar, man. Like, blood is in the bar. Like, whatever. Like, I, even back in Chamber of Secrets, remember, like, when uh, Fudge went into Hagrid's and Lucius wanted to going to Hagrid's hut and they went to Hagrid's hut and that's where like Hermione, Harry and Ron were with the invisibility cloak. So you would have saw even at, at least something like that. <laughs> you would have thought like to go in there, but I kind of took it as like, like I was okay with it. Cause I thought of it kind of like that moment. We always bring up game of Thrones cause it's our major first arc we did on the show, but it's like season eight game of Thrones. Remember when Arya like talks to those two guards that were like nobodies and said, well, if, um, how about you tell her I'm here, and if if I if I can get past you, um, you know Sansa's not going to be happy to know that her little sister <laughs> that her sister was here and you didn't let her know, and kind of like went past the guards or whatever. So I kind of just looked at it like maybe these are just really shitty Death Eaters that like didn't know their job. But at the same time, wasn't it like ten fucking Death Eaters that saw this? It was or a, was it just like two Death it Eaters? It was a dozen. I know, like two were talking, but it mentions when they arrived, there were like ten Death Eaters. Dude, it was there. a dozen. It was twelve Death Eaters. Okay, okay, gotcha. It was a dozen. Yeah. So I'm the same way. I find it hard to believe, but. I don't know. I'm okay with it because I can let it slide. I can let it slide. But this goes into my plot holes here. So one, like it was a really cool full circle moment that they ended up at the three broomsticks right where, you know, a year ago. The hog's head, not the three broomsticks. Hog's head. That's what I mean. Hog's head. Um, When they were at hog's head. What were the, uh, yeah. So when the dragon ended up at hog's head, same area where, you know, Albus uh, was so weak from the year before. Well, keep in mind, the of, dragon didn't end up at Hogshead. They apparated to the Hogsmeade. Apparated yeah. to Hogshead. So they ended up at the lake. Is that where they ended up? Or like not the dragon? The, yeah, not the Hogwarts lake. They ended up in a random lake that was just flying because they wanted to get off the dragon before the dragon realized that they were on them because they were afraid the dragon might try to eat them. So they jumped off into okay, a gotcha. random lake. Then when they swam to shore, that's when Harry had that vision of Voldemort killing everybody. Then he's like, and then he found out, oh shoot, the Horcrux is at Hogwarts. And then that's when they all like apparated under the invisibility cloak and ended up in Hogsmeade. So okay, yeah. gotcha. That answers that then, because I was thinking like, I mean, I guess they must. The only thing I can say is I guess they must have been like thousands of miles away, because I mean, apparition. I guess luckily it's instantaneous. But that was the thing. It was like, what are the odds that dragon would end up anywhere near Hogwarts? Right, it didn't. It but, didn't, yeah. Yeah, okay, so that answers that. So that's good. So good. Check one for Jay Nelly. <laughs> there you go. Good deal. <laughs> glad we can glad we can uh, explain ourselves. <laughs> Let's see. So the next one here, uh, I just have like like I don't mind it like I like the way they explained it I guess I just like have kind of an issue like 
that Voldemort has like no connection to his Horcruxes at all. Like he has a connection, but like has no idea. Like no fucking clue if one gets like destroyed. Kind of find that a little like hard to believe. Like you would think like J.K. Rowling would have put something in there. Like you, like Harry has all these visions. You know, we'll get into that later. That comes up in you know next week and the week after that. But. You would think he'd have some connection after splitting his fucking soul. Like, he just, like, like has no idea. Like, I don't know. Like, I have no idea where that locket is. I have no idea where the diary's been. It's been fucking years. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I... What do you think about that? I find it, like, a bit of a stretch. Honestly, and it's funny because, like, this is one of the... You know, not to mention differences, but I've already... Obviously, already talked... You know, in my notes, I've tackled the differences between part two and you know the rest yeah. of the Harry Potter novel. It's funny because like not to mention too much about differences, but uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. the movie does show like Voldemort feeling it when the Horcruxes are destroyed. But uh, in fact, in the novel, he doesn't. So that's a difference of itself that you know I'll mention mm-hmm. later on. But honestly, to me, I actually like the fact that he doesn't feel uh, the Horcruxes when they're destroyed. To me, what that does is it really shows how like less of a human Voldemort is than everybody else. He doesn't feel properly. Like he's he's tarnished himself so much that he's barely can be considered a human, right? Like he's almost more snake like yeah. than he is a, a person. You know, he's like I said like his nostrils are like little slits for nostrils and his eyes, you know, are red gleaming and his long fingers like with like crazy nails and it just it, to me it, it really just shows how inhuman he really is he just doesn't feel pain he doesn't he, he's emotionally disconnected from everything because he's not really human anymore because he created the horcruxes in my mind i, I, I kind of like it it, even, it adds to his like mystique and adds to his evil in a way i kind of enjoy the fact that he doesn't uh feel anything when his horcruxes are destroyed that's my personal thoughts and opinions on it but yeah that's I what think, i think i like that like that was a good way to explain it i can accept it accept it check two for jay nelly <laughs> there you go point two jay nelly i got it. i can accept it like i don't have i didn't have a problem with it so i think it's i think it's good i like it the other one i just think is a bit of a stretch like i don't have a problem with this either but like how close was Aberforth really to Dobby? Like, to warn him about Malfoy Manor? Like, I guess, like, I know Dobby was work- working in the kitchens for a while for, like, Albus. And I get it. Like, I guess he probably came across Dobby, like, on multiple times. But, like, it's the whole stretch of, like, he sent Dobby there. Like, out of all the elves he probably encounters at that fucking bar, like... Like, really? How often does Dobby go in that bar? Like, Dobby doesn't really seem like the type to really interact with Aberforth. Like, I get it. Like, he's been keeping an eye on him. And I think it was a great full circle moment that it's Dobby the one that comes to save us, save Harry and the group, you know. But it was a little bit of a stretch. What do you think? So, what I think is very similar to what Dumbledore did for ron and hermione and harry i think he gave them little pieces of information to help them along their journey and so very similarly i think he kind of talked to because you, you saw that aberforth and albus had a conversation at the very least about sirius's mirror so remember and he like right. he said he bought it off mundungus and Albus was like yeah 
uh, you know that you know that was Sirius's, and Harry will be very upset if he knows that you have it. But on top of that, to me, it's like Albus kind of always had. He was always one step ahead intellectually mm-hmm. of everything. So I think he probably would have told, "Hey, if the day ever comes, I know you have this mirror," because he said he had, he got it about a year ago when Dumbledore was still alive, when Albus Dumbledore was still alive. So in my mind, he's like, "Hey, if the time ever comes and Harry needs your help, this there's someone in my like you know in my employee, you know Dobby the house elf that would drop everything at a drop, you know." stop everything at the drop of a hat to go help Harry Potter. And, you know, I think he would almost, like, yeah. tell... Because I don't think any of the house elves go to Hogsmeade to clean anything. I think Hogs... Like, the, the Hogsmeade is on its own. Right. Like they got they got to do their own thing. They're not part of the castle. They're their, they're their own village. So I don't think the Hogwarts house elves leave the castle to go clean the village. Right. Like, I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. their job. I think they're just stuck to the castle. So in my mind, I think Albus kind of tipped off Aberforth that, hey... You know what? This house elf and Harry have a really great connection. If he ever, if he, Harry ever comes in a, a time where you need to help him, this mirror is going to help you find him. On top of that, this is someone that can help out. This is a creature that will, you know, do anything for Harry Potter. So that's what I think. I think Albus might have tipped him off that, you know, you've got this mirror. Here's how you can be helpful and useful if Harry ever needs your help. That's what I would assume. Yeah. That's where my thought process comes in, anyways. And you would think. And I'm assuming you're talking about after Dobby was set free, or you predict that Albus thought Harry was going to set Dobby free at one point? Well, this would have to be after uh, Dobby was set free, because Dobby didn't work for Hogwarts until after he was set free. You know what I mean? Well, that's what I'm saying. I wasn't sure if you were trying to say... Well, on top of that, well, no, because keep in mind, too, like he didn't get Harry's mirror until last year, so that's obviously got to be within the year. Right. You know, that's what I Yeah, that's... I I can see it. I mean, that... I get it. It makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. I don't have a problem with it. Check three to Jay Nelly. <laughs> Check three. Check three. Yeah, man. Uh, so what about you? What's your interesting fact for the episode, brother? So this is kind of a fun one because I actually learned a lot more than I thought I was going to off of this. My interesting fact today actually details uh, Ragnuk the First, which was the creator of the Sword of Gryffindor. Uh, so, anyways, he was a goblin king, so that that was interesting. That just that fact alone, but he was the king of the goblins during the lifetime of Godric Gryffindor. He was a maker of the famous sword of Gryffindor. So, uh, Ragnuk was commissioned by Gryffindor to forge a sword of pure goblin silver with rubies set into the hilt. And by the time Ragnuk had finished the sword, he liked it so much that he tried to steal it back from Godric Gryffindor. So what he did, he sent a group of his subjects to retrieve the sword and kind of steal it back from Godric Gryffindor, but they were all fought off by Gryffindor himself. He, they say like, Gryffindor was a skilled duelist, and so Gryffindor fought off all of the people that he sent to steal it from him. Said uh, Gryffindor bewitched the goblins to return to Ragnuk and inform Ragnuk that if he tried to steal the sword again, that he, Gryffindor himself, would use the sword that Ragnuk made to kill Ragnuk and all of his subjects. So that was oh, wow. really That's badass. Good. And after that, That's really good. Ragnuk made no further attempt to take the sword. However, a legend persisted in the Goblin community that Gryffindor was the one who stole the sword, and that was a myth perpetuated by the fact that goblins consider passing goblin-made possessions on to others without further payment to the maker, as Gryffindor would go on to do as theft. And that kind of draws into full circle of what... Um, Griphook was talking about there as well. So that is my interesting fact for the day about Ragnar the First and a little bit of brief history of the original conflict regarding the Sword of Gryffindor between goblins and wizards. Yeah, man, great stuff. 
Yeah, we actually touched on that just a little bit in the interesting facts, but not the fact that like he was king and uh, some of the really great detail he had there. That was great stuff. So uh, definitely some major controversy <laughs> when it comes to goblins, witches, and wizards. Um, mine is actually a little bit ironic, actually. So it's on the goat Patronus. Um, what's ironic about this? So you would never expect, according to Pottermore, I'm actually pretty skeptical myself, but this is exactly what it says on the website. Um, it is known to be more powerful than most other Patronuses. It is very unknown, but most wizards and witches agree it is the most powerful of all Patronuses. So who would have thought that the goat is the most powerful of every Patronus out there? Um, and the only other thing known about it is it reflects people with unusual personality. Everything else is unknown, which makes sense. I mean, if you think about it in a different way, Aberforth with his brother being as exceptional and powerful as he was, you would think Aberforth being able to form a corporeal Patronus is pretty damn powerful. So it, it can make sense. I just found that so shocking when I saw that and looked that up. And uh, it's very rare if you ever take the Pottermore test that anyone ever gets a goat Patronus. So I don't know who has. If you have, please leave us a comment. Send us an email. Uh, send us a notification because I don't I, mine's not I know yours is a husky mine's a grass snake those are not exactly the most common but they're definitely no goats so <laughs> I don't know and uh, you know Aberforth was known for the goat farming like he would uh, we talked about before he would take the antlers <laughs> he would uh, you know polish up those antlers there that was considered illegal sometimes so it fits in perfect <laughs> i think it's great yeah man what? you want to close this out for today yeah i'm going to touch on that for a quick second first though it's like kind of a little bit to aberforth's credit too and in terms of you know being a very obscure patronus like aberforth's really an obscure person we don't find out much about him or know much about him until the last part mm -hmm. of the last book Right, like we're in, we're in, like you know the the end. I say that we're in the end yeah, game now, but like you know what I mean. But like we all, <laughs> of this whole book, now. the Hogshead, the barman at the Hogshead has been someone who's been repeatedly kind of like you know he we know he's there, but we know nothing about the barman that you know owns the Hogshead. Right. Now we only know we still only know a little bit about him. We just learn about you know the conflict between Grindelwald himself and Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore, that ended up killing his sister. So there's not like he's kind of ambiguous himself. He's kind of it's one of those you know just like his Patronus not very well known like it's very uh they're, they're hard to come by he's a very interesting person and i think it's kind of cool that the goat is known as the most powerful patronus because you know if, if you guys are sports fans what's the acronym for goat is greatest of all time right so that patronus awesome. is the greatest <laughs> of all time it's the most powerful yeah. so uh, i thought it was pretty cool and i think it fits everforth well not only and also goats don't have antlers they have horns but on top of that, uh, I do want to say that uh, Aberforth is also known. It said that in the uh, memoirs from Bethilda Bagshot, retrieved by Rita Skeeter, that uh, one of the neighbors of the Dumbledores, that Aberforth would throw goat dung at the neighbors. So he's always had <laughs> this weird awesome. thing with goats, man. So, uh, yeah, with that being said, yeah, I guess we can kind of do the whole close out here, guys. So before we go... We always do this every single time. We want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We love to have you here. 
if you haven't noticed by now we have kind of taken off on TikTok a little bit. We've got a few videos up there that have gotten a substantial amount of views for how new we are to the platform. So we're really excited about that. Uh, that you can actually find us at Ridiculous Patronus. It's not at official Ridiculous Patronus. It's at Ridiculous Patronus on TikTok. So just want to make that designation clear because on our Instagram, you guys can find us at official Ridiculous Patronus. And on <laughs> yeah. our Facebook fan page, it's Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So follow us on all forms of social media. We're on every single one of them. Twitter, we're at RP Factor Fantasy. Uh, Snapchat, same thing, RP Factor Fantasy. We have anywhere you have any sort of social gathering, we're on there. We even on LinkedIn, believe it or not. Uh, so we, we've got a, a large presence in those areas. Talking about where you can get your podcast from, too, it doesn't matter if you got an Android, if you got an iPhone, we're everywhere. So we've got, uh, you know, we are on Apple Podcasts. If you have an iPhone, we're on Google Play and Spotify. If you got an Android, we're on iHeartRadio. We're on YouTube. We have our own website as well. Our hosting site, Podbean, always takes care of us. You can find us there as well. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can get Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy, especially what we're talking about right now, you know, us coming up on the final couple episodes of our first season. You don't want to miss a single episode. So if you're brand new, stick around. If you've been with us since day one, you already know the deal. You know what you're going to get from us, all the detail, all the highlights, the great things that can be overlooked and some things that uh, maybe are brand new information, especially considering some of the Chase's interesting facts episodes that we're going to as well. But it's all coming to an end pretty soon. We only got a few episodes left. And talk about season one. Of course, we're going to continue on season two with new topics, but Harry Potter is almost at an end. This is our second big arc that we're doing. It's one that everyone knows. It's like the most beloved fantasy fiction franchise, I believe, amongst everyone universally in the world. It's definitely the most popular. I think it's probably one of the most loved as well. So do not miss a single episode throughout the rest of this season because you can't afford to. This is all going to be climax after climax after climax from here until we finish out the book the film differences and our rankings episode it's all great stuff so i'll let chase say some last words and i'll give our breakdown cadence and we'll get out of here for today yeah man uh i I think you said it best just like steve rogers said we're in the end game now (laughs) like this is it we are at the well, that, peak of the mountain. Hold on, There's that was no Doctor Strange. That was not Steve Rogers. That was Doctor Strange who said that. <laughs> oh, that was Doctor Strange. Yeah, he saw how many outcomes. <laughs> yeah, well played. So, Doctor Strange, well played. You do know your MCU. That was a test. <laughs> Check for Jay Nelly again today. Point four for Jay Nelly. Man, just dropping Hail Marys in the end zone while Chase throws interceptions <laughs> all over the place, man. <laughs> Anyways, but uh, yeah, just like you said, we are, uh, so I guess, you know, in the words of uh, Tony Stark, he didn't have any words because he died. (laughs) (laughs) Suck it, bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler alert. I hope you saw it three years later. Anyways, anyways, so we are at the very top of the mountain. There's no more climbing. We are going off the rails in the next two episodes. Uh, there is no turning back, um, and like Jay Nelly just said, well, we don't want to leave you guys on that very last page. Uh, so of course we have a couple of episodes left. You know, we have our differences episode that we will have for part two, which will be great, and then we have that one surprise episode uh, that we'll have for you guys, which we'll get into later. Which you know, we definitely like rankings, and it's going to be just like the chase of chase and josh of old (laughs) as you guys know that's been with us from the beginning i'll let jay nelly sign us off once again guys 
you are the fans that guard the realms of fantasy. We cannot thank you guys enough for being with us from the beginning. Um, it really just means so much to us. Once again, cast a spell on that subscribe button. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts. really means a lot. Um, you can follow our website, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. We're still kind of updating some of that stuff, uh, getting all that up there with the clips. So all that will be updated by the end of the season for you guys. And um, just thanks for everything. And I'll let Jay Nelly sign us off, man. Off to next week. Sounds like a plan, brother, just like you said. We're off to next week. We're out of here for the day because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off. off.